Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Game, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Feuerstein. And because it's a Boston episode, we are joined as, as we are joined sometimes by Joe Gagne. As sometimes. Joe. Joe, it pains me to, as a Canadian, it pains me every time I have to say Gagne and not Gagne. But Joe, Matt, good to have you here. Yes, thank you. I always show up on like that Keith Lipinski character. That's <laughs> true. Funny, you you have never even been late. This show. You have never even been late, unlike me. To, to be fair, we also, I don't think to my knowledge, we have not booked you as a guest the night before your birthday. So uh, that is one slight difference. But, but Joe, I want to wish you a happy birthday anyway. Oh, oh. I know it's not your birthday, but uh, I want to wish you a very happy birthday. Thank you. I've done audio on my birthday before. This is not, uh, believe me, I have no better place to be right now, and I had no better place to be a year ago before all this stuff. So. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess we're starting it off. This is the the Joe versus Keith competition now to see who is a better human being. And, uh, I don't know. Joe, Joe, Joe just, Joe just fired some shots. Uh, I take no sides. No better place to be. Yes. Ooh, was was that a run in from that was a, Gag? <laughs> yes, that was a run in. I'm getting one of them looks. This right is like now. a voices of wrestling style running from the romantic partner of one of the hosts. This is a first 52 episodes. It took us for this, Matt, this is pretty incredible. And quite frankly, is making me feel worse about my personal life. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that got a little too right, real. Well handled there. Uh, <laughs> moving on, uh, you know what will never leave you lonely and sad and wondering when you're going to find a partner is the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. So many great shows to listen to. There can always be a voice in your head, even if it's not one lovingly being slightly annoyed with you for saying that there's no place you'd rather be than recording a wrestling podcast on a Saturday night. There are still some great voices to listen to, talking about a lot of interesting things in the world of wrestling. So check out the other shows. It's not just us. There are plenty of great shows, past and present, on the feed. And that, with that, we can get into the show proper. Um, there, some news happened between the last Ring of, Ring of Honor show we covered and this one. I'll go over a couple little tidbits. This one's just kind of a weird little thing I thought was kind of interesting. It's not a huge thing. But from the Wrestling Observer around this era... Um, Dave wrote raw notes from October 25th in Des Moines, Iowa, lots of signs and a half dozen right in front of the camera were ring of honor signs. When triple H was out, there was a sign right on camera reading Samoa Joe real world champion. It was thrown out there so much that I thought if Vince was there or if triple H saw them instead of looking at the camera in the other direction, they'd call him up, bring him in and job him out just out of spite. Um, I only bring this up just because I think this is the first time in like always looking over newsletters. I'm sure this is pro- not the first time we ever there's ever been a Ring of Honor sign in the crowd. But this is the first time where it's actually been called attention to. And it was kind of surprising that it was like I would never consider like Des Moines, Iowa, a Ring of Honor hotbed, but apparently there was a half dozen prominent signs in the crowd right in front of the hard camera. When you have the internet, everywhere is a, is your hotbed. That's what I say. Um, and yeah, it's it's. This is probably not the first Samoa Joe would sign. Uh, I remember the first like internet related sign that I was drawn attention to as a wrestling fan was at WrestleMania 13. Someone behind the announcers had a sign for Scoops. 
Do you guys remember that? Scoops oh, but I remember. With, I remember with Isaacs. point out those signs like yeah. um, the next day's report, yes. So so 2004 is the uh, – I mean, I mean, Samoa Joe is the 2004 version of Scoops. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> was that a young Seth Rollins who uh, had that sign? Probably, probably, <laughs> yeah. And uh, another note, this is going to – this is – I could be making a horrible mistake here after the way too long Meltzer bit I read from the last episode, but I did think this was interesting. At this time in Ring of Honor history, Dave went out of his way to write a whole long piece just putting over Ring of Honor, which seeing as how the last time – last episode we talked about how much Dave's endorsement could mean at this point in wrestling and how much it meant for uh, Joe versus Punk 2. I thought I'd read it, although I might regret it, so going over this. Meltzer wrote in The Observer, for those of you losing interest in wrestling, before checking out, you should, you really should check out, Ray, uh, check out Ring of Honor videos. As mentioned before, it's what I wish the direction of TNA was similar, and it's a total 180 from WWE. A lot of the top matches are similar to Japanese junior heavyweight style with fast-paced action and tons of innovative moves, and there are a lot of talented guys and many different styles. If the Japan stuff doesn't work for you because of the language issues and not understanding the angles, then this gets you a little bit of both worlds. They book their titles to mean something, so Samoa Joe as world champ has the feeling of being the top guy. Plus, in the end, he wins his matches, and you don't have the overdone ref bumps and run-ins like in the big promotions. The matches in the title picture, both in building the two title shots and the title matches themselves, have the feel of athletic contests and the feel of meaning something. The Havana Pitbulls, who are the tag champs, are the best tag team in the U.S. No! Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Brian Danielson, Doug Williams, and Nigel McGinnis, who all have different styles, although they incorporate large degrees of the old-school British style, which, because you only see it on the indies, is like something new and innovative. That was a sentence from Dave Meltzer. That is not on me. Um, And all three are all all excellent technical wrestlers. That is a separate sentence from Dave Meltzer. If you are into high-flying, there's probably nobody, nobody any better today than Jack Evans. All of the top guys have their own characters. There is a lot of thought put into the booking. Not every angle is perfect, but the major direction is strong, and it's one of the U.S. promotions where I have a lot of interest in where things are going. It is a specialized thing, and a lot of wrestlers are very small and don't look like the wrestlers people grew up with. But the guys who are pushed at the top all have something. It does have limited appeal, partially because outside its audience, none of the top names are known. If you want old-style Mid-South or Mid-Atlantic with big, powerful guys being carried by great workers and strong emotion, this isn't going to be it. And there is nothing in wrestling that is. OVW has that kind of booking, but mainly with green guys. The crowd reactions are, the most part, for the most part, are also like Japanese. And then at times, it's very quiet, but you can see the fans are into the action, and then towards the end, they're popping big for all the key spots. The shows range from good to great, but when they are over, more often than not, I'm always left with the feeling that I've gotten more than any of the pay-per-views except on the nights WWE hits a home run. The occasional cameos by people like Foley, Cornette, and Steamboat give a good rub to the talent they work with, and because they aren't wrestling, they don't overshadow the talent except except give the show a major league feel because Foley and Cornette's promos are the best in the business right now. And Steamboat, in the Ring of Honor setting and how he's used, has the ability to elevate stars by working with them. To me, the only real negative is the lag time, as the last DVD out is from 9-11, but that's just how it is. Since Gabe Sapolsky is an ECW disciple, the, um, he's no doubt learned the negative of trying to be too big, because that would be the group's undoing. 
Because of what newer fans have grown to expect from production values of TV shows, I don't even think TV would greatly increase interest. It's really a group aimed at the long-time hardcore fan. As compared with ECW nearly 10 years ago, ECW had advantages in that it could introduce new styles from other countries not seen in the U.S., and there were more potential stars available. ECW had more of an upside in one sense, but because ECW was the third wheel during a competitive wrestling war, it ran into problems trying to keep talent from going, which ultimately was the killer because they couldn't afford to keep them when they got big offers, but them leaving killed the company. Because WWE wouldn't be interested in 90% of the guys here due to the size and look, that's not an issue. Long term, the only thing is to continually find new talent to put into the mix, as well as successfully change, as the Ring of Honor of today is totally different from the Ring of Honor two years ago, as it's more storyline-based with more heels and faces. So that was Dave giving a pretty, you know, um, big endorsement to Ring of Honor. Although I will say, a lot of that stuff, you know, it doesn't last forever like the idea of dave going all these guys are really small and nine percent of them you know would never make it in wwe because of their size like that changes not too long after this yeah well also i mean i think i think i agreed with the vast majority of what he was saying um it, it you know it's stuff like that yes um he does mention there aren't a lot of ref bumps there are an incredible amount of eye pokes um one thing i uh, i disagreed with though do you think that ROH crowds are like Japanese crowds? Um, no. Yeah, because I don't. I feel like if, when the crowd is really quiet, that's because you got a dead crowd on your hands, not because they're being like respectful most of the time. You know, there's the occasional situation like that. But I feel like when an ROH crowd is really popping, like they're reacting a lot. <laughs> yeah, the, the, and also very... saying saying rude and crude things, yelling them and trying to make <laughs> be funny and get themselves over. It. Very different from a Japanese crowd. I don't know if what you think, uh, guys. Yeah, it, they're very occasionally. It has been a match we've seen. I think where it's very straight mat work for a couple of minutes, and maybe the crowd's being respectful and quiet, but not turning on it. But generally, I think when you watch Ring of Honor shows, if the crowd is quiet, nine times out of ten, like something's wrong. Like I'm not going, oh, this is a really respectful silence. Like if if they like what they're seeing, they're usually making noise. But Joe, I think Joe, are, are you Joe? Joe, the- on, on a Weekend of Thunder, were you like a Japanese crowd? <laughs> like you, per- so, like no. you personally, as a, as an individual, were you like an entire Japanese crowd? First, I mean, personally, I just like to sit quietly at a show and, and take it all in. But if everyone was like me, it would, it would not be good crowds. Yeah, that, no, that's true. So, I'm actually like that too. I'm very, um, I'm very uh, shy at, at shows. I try and make noise, but like I usually am trying to be not the first. I don't start chants and stuff. But in the few times I've been able to attend quality live wrestling, like I definitely don't want to not add to the noise but yeah i've I've never been i don't think any of us have are the people that have the guts to like start a chant because i think if i was ever one of those people that tries to start a chant and no one picks up on it i think i would that'd probably be my last day on earth because i would just crawl into a hole and uh die i'd probably leave the show (laughs) well that's that see i I never started chants but i would sometimes start those claps successfully occasionally that, 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 that would work and um you know i think the only time i really made like verbal noise was like if there was a move and this happened a decent amount on roh shows that would literally make me organically go like oh or like ah or whoa i remember like during joe versus kobashi i literally shrieked during one of the suplexes <laughs> so th- I, I make that kind of noise but never intentional 
For a second, when you got to orga, I thought he's going to say orgasmically. <laughs> oh, this is going to take a, a spicy turn this episode. You but just wait. You disappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple other quick notes before we talk about we get to talk about the show that we're covering today, which is Weekend of Thunder Night One. The first is another thing the Observer talked about from around this time is Dave wrote when he was offhandedly talking about other business stuff like all the different promotions in some article, he wrote, Ring of Honor is now about 200 paid tickets per show shy of being a genuine success, which I thought was really interesting given that for, I would say, the first two, until the Feinstein scandal and all the, like, dire financial stuff came out about how, you know, like, Silk and Ori lost a bunch of money, Rob had lost a bunch of money, the company was in danger of shutting down at one point without Carrie. Like, before that, Dave, and to be fair, like this is something Gabe had said, I think, in a PW Torch interview and stuff. They were always like, oh, we're aiming for mid-400s makes us break even before we get to DVD sales. So now, at a point where Ray Long is usually doing at least 500 a show, at least Dave's saying, oh, they need to do at least 200 more to be a success. Well, they have, like, they have, they have Mick Foley and Ricky Steamboat. I don't know how much that adds to their uh – their pre- their uh, expenses each show, um, but who? who yeah, knows? and and um, and I don't know how much even Liger would cost, you know, for these shows. But I can't imagine he's as cheap as I don't know Izzy. <laughs> like I imagine he's an added expense. Um, but yeah, so it's just interesting how that kind of changes, and it, they don't really like. I, I, I get it that you've learned new information, but there's never like a reckoning in the newsletters where they're like, well, we said it was always break even at 450 and now we're saying they need to sell 200 more than they're selling. And like they never tell you why both these statements have popped up in the newsletters, although you can kind of put it together for yourself probably. Yeah, no one ever did like a critical analysis of ROH's business at this time. They just sort of stated whatever – basically whatever Gabe told Dave, that's what Dave reported. And uh, there was really no further inquiry inquiry (laughs) into that. There was no WrestleNomics for the Indies in 2004. But uh, finally, there's a couple – Bruce Mitchell wrote one of his great quote – I put great in quotes – comedy articles in uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch in this point in 2004. They're very funny. Very, very funny. (laughs) He – he he uh, did some of his wacky, like, fake definitions for different things happening in wrestling at the time. And so he did a couple about Ring of Honor, and both of them I don't really get. Let me read both of them. First one, Bruce wrote, Death Before Dishonor, Pure Champion, Testing the Limits, World Title Classic, Round Robin Challenge, Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 1, Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 2, Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 1, he wrote again, at our best, the battle lines are drawn, glory by honor to nouns. The name given by Booker gave Sapolsky to his same-looking, overbooked, yet mostly well-wrestled Ring of Honor shows. Like, uh, I don't... Like, yeah, I don't get, like, overbooked. They're also same-looking? Like, I guess they're all in darkened, small buildings, but I just... No, they they have a completely each each show has a completely different color palette thanks to the lack of white balancing. <laughs> exactly, you never know what color the wrestlers are going to be at ringside. Um, but then this was the one that really made me scratch my head: Scramble Cage Mealy, Ultimate Endurance Elimination Match, Retribution Round Robin Challenge, Survival of the Fittest. Nouns: What Ring of Honor Booker gave Sapolsky books to let guys work the main events instead of paying main event money. I have no idea what the fuck that means. I'm sorry. I just, like, I, I'm sure Ring of Honor was not paying, you know, like a lot of these top indies, they were paying guys not 
probably as much as they deserve, but they were paying in exposure and opportunity and things like that. But like, I don't even get what that means. What Ring of Honor Booker gave Sapolsky books to let guys work the main events instead of paying main event money. I think I, I mean I think I get what he's saying. I don't think it's funny, but I think I, I get what he's saying, which is like he's he's booked like a match like Scramble Cage Melee to have guys that he would never put in main events otherwise and not pay them like main eventers, but still book like a main event with them in it. Like because it's like multiple guys, so he could argue like the the, the wrestlers aren't the draw; it's the gimmick that's the draw. Well, even like like, like was... Ring Crew Express was in the main event of Scramble Cage Melee. They probably didn't make mo- so much more money than they normally do, right? At least that's yeah. Bruce's theory. Well, you could say that every. Although, wasn't the gimmick at Scramble Cage Melee that the winner was going to get like ten times their 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 show rate or something? Wasn't that like the gimmick there, like the added stip, which we both immediately thought like that's not true, <laughs> but yes, like. We should get. We should contact Jack Evans and say, "Did you get like five hundred dollars instead of fifty dollars?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I, um, I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with what Bruce is saying, but I understand what he's trying to say, at least with that one. In the other one, I don't understand at all. I, um, I also think to call ROH shows overbooked is really absurd. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the like, grand scheme of pro wrestling, two thousand and four ROH as overbooked. Like, what? I think Bruce touched on that in a column we talked about like a while ago where he was like, he, he thought there was too many storylines, but I thought it was the right amount because everyone had a purpose. Like, he almost, it made it sound like he wanted to have like, just the top guys have gimmicks and storylines and everything else is kind of random. And to me, one of the things I loved most about Ring of Honor is in its prime, it felt like everybody had a, a character and a direction. Where It's also the it, opposite of like everyone else's critique of ROH. Exactly. Yeah. And to get to Bruce, it's like, oh, it's overbooked. There's too much, you know, it should be, which, yeah, like not, not. So yeah, I definitely do. I think my views on indie wrestling are pretty far apart from uh, Bruce Mitchell's, but that brings us to weekend of thunder night one. It took place November 5th, 2004 at the greater Boston indoor sports center in Revere, Massachusetts in front of a reported crowd of 675 fans. So is this the same building as scramble cage melee? Oh no! This is uh, this was a one and done in Revere. This is uh, Revere was I think in Braintree, but this is the only time they ran this building. And thank God because this uh, this building, it's, you know, Scramble Cage Melee was so we were all roasting. This building was freezing in November. <laughs> I think there were two working toilets uh, for, the, for the whole crowd. And um, yeah, this was as it says part of a greater indoor sports arena. So there were like soccer games going on at the same time with this show. I think at one point you clearly hear a buzzer like. Eh. Uh, at one point, and not, like you know, we heard a lot of whistles and things like that all night <laughs> that didn't really get picked up. Not but as course, bad as you know, all the background noise at the Rexplex, but still pretty bad. Yeah, but of course, like if you took little Timmy to a soccer game and you hear a crowd of people screaming bullshit, I don't know. I guess it goes both ways. <laughs> well, they were probably I, screaming it at that damn soccer game. Those refs don't oh, know yeah. what they're doing. Um, so, actually, but but this was like. Oh, Oh, no, I was going to say, this was like, after this, there's like two more Boston shows, and then they're kind of gone from Boston for a long time, right? Yeah, this is, uh, there's another one in January back in Braintree, I think. Then they moved to Dorchester for two shows, and then that's kind of it for a while until we get, they moved to Connecticut as kind of their New England base. Yeah, it's it's weird because it's like, obviously, Boston was like a really important spot for them at the beginning. It was their first spot outside of, um, outside of philly but like do you think it's like do you think that the the shows they gave boston just weren't good enough for the market 
Uh, this one clearly was. And, you yeah. know, we started getting, they would do Friday, Saturday shows. We would get the Friday shows, which are always not as appealing as right. the, the, the Saturday ones. But, you know, they were still high quality and we were glad to get them. So right. maybe they just thought they got a good deal in Connecticut or it was just easier for travel. I don't know. And I actually think that's a really interesting thing because, like you just said, Joe, normally Ring of Honor's pattern would always be on these double shots, which they would be running more and more often. You run the weaker market on Friday and you give them, like, the lesser of the two shows, even though both shows on a double shot usually share much of the same talent, or if not almost entirely. But, like, this was a show where it kind of – kind of an oddity in that sense where you look at it and they would repeat this with Joe Kabashi the next year. The 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 Friday show, the early show, gets the uh, the best card. I would argue, like you, to me, you know, Brian Danielson and Jushin Liger in a singles match is is a sexier matchup. Even though the tag on the next night looks great on paper, where it's Liger and Joe versus Danielson and and Key. If you ask me on paper, which you know main event I'd rather see, I'd rather see the singles match, and I think the undercard. For Friday is better too. You got you know Aries and Punk, which is big names on paper. You've got, I think Jack Evans and Roderick Strong is a much better title defense team to name, and then um, Moff and Whitmer. Like I just I think it's a better looking card. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe this was I don't know if it was a make do to the Boston area or what, but you're absolutely right. And this is as they mentioned on commentary, this is the first time uh, Brian Danielson was in the area in two years, so they kind of added even more. You know, there's almost as not as big a treat, but you know, a big treat to see him live as well as uh, as Lager. Also, also yeah, felt like a pretty hot crowd as well. Yeah, I think everyone was just. It's one of the things like you're gonna see something great, and you're just in a good mood all night. It was kind of my memories of it. Like, oh, we're gonna see something so awesome. You're just up for the whole show. And yeah, in fact, yeah, this was in fact uh, Brian Danielson's first match for Ring of Honor in Boston since Scramble Cage. I mean, no, no, um, Scramble. Madness. Madness. Scramble Madness we did the uh, 30-minute Iron Man with Doug Williams. Which was literally two years prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Joe, I actually thought I would give you a bit of a – I was going to do a bit of a comparison. I, I like that you already remembered the, the, the conditions of the building because I thought I would do a little compare contrast here. This is a quote from Mike Johnson who also attended this show, Joe. Uh, Mike Johnson wrote – the, the venue is absolutely awesome for sight lines. Although if they fit a few more, a few sets of bleachers into it, it would be perfect. It reminded me of the larger scale version of the old Champs Arena in Sewell, New Jersey that CCW used to run. That said, the building was beyond freezing. It seems like any time Ring of Honor runs Boston, you have your choice of Hoth or Hell for a climate. And then I'll go to uh, some guy named Joe Gagne, a live report from the time, wrote for the CubsFan.com. Show was held at the Greater Boston Indoor Sports Center in Revere, the seventh building in ten shows they've run in Massachusetts. Let me be the first to say I hate the new building. Not only did we have to drive through Boston, always an adventure to get there, the building was freezing, there was a whopping two toilets, the power went out a few times, and the show was held in a larger sports facility with soccer games going on simultaneously. We'd hear whistles and buzzers throughout the night, which led to plenty of the referee awards a yellow card to American Dragon. Dragon jokes, although I can't imagine what the soccer fans th- thought of the bullshit and fuck TNA chance. Um, sounds like sounds like it should have been called the less great Boston Indoor Sports Center. <laughs> Joe, like it, it's pretty amazing. You know, Matt was just talking with you about how um, 
you know, Ring of Honor wouldn't last that much longer in the Boston market. It's pretty amazing that they were as healthy as the market as they were, considering how much they got dicked around. Seven buildings in ten shows. Like, that's pretty... And the crowds usually didn't suffer that much for it. I think this one was the biggest crowd they've done in Boston. I think the biggest crowd they did on a Friday Ring yes, of Honor I be- show. I believe this was the biggest crowd for a Friday show. Um, in fact, if I go scroll up in my notes, that brings us to another little note where um, there was a big advance for this. Um, the Observer wrote when they announced at the, the a previous Elizabeth, New Jersey Ring of Honor show that Liger would be coming and they put the tickets on sale. Dave wrote in the Observer, they had by their standards a big advance in Elizabeth when Liger's name was announced. The first three rows sold out instantly. It'll be interesting, Dave writes, because the Liger name got a huge pop and when they brought in Japanese stars in the past it's been a huge success i'm wondering if liger can draw the kind of crowd great muda drew last year which was around 1500 and then david Wright in a different observer the goal is 750 paid for this show in revere now according to uh melter and the observer they drew 675 so they came 75 short 75 people short of what they wanted i always use the observer not because i think they're the most trustworthy on arena things but i just like to use the same source to stay consistent so i can compare it but i will note that when i was looking at different live reports all the estimates varied between 600 and 700 no one came to 750 but uh, we'll talk about this more on the next episode how this weekend did but i can summarize it here as saying like they did very good but they were expecting even bigger like they were expecting for the next night to break records and it didn't it just like this show, it did not quite hit what they did, but still did really well for a Friday show. Um, while we're getting to just the last couple notes here, uh, we should note that this show had the first ever ramp in Ring of Honor history, a little metal ramp. Um, uh, Mike Johnson wrote in The Torch, the company is making strides in terms of the manner in which the product is presented on home releases. Uh, they had a whole new entrance area complete with a small ramp. If you listen to the um, Honorable Mention podcast episode, our friends Shane Hagedorn and Jeff Schwartz, um, they did a whole episode about this show. And uh, Shane talks about how it was a pain in the ass to transport and set up the blocks that made this ramp, apparently. He was not enthused with this being added to the shows as one of the crew members. A um, couple other notes quick. Mike Johnson wrote, the promotion broke its attendance record for Friday events, which may have been a hard draw, which have been a hard draw for them, as well as merchandise sales in the Boston area last night. There were fans from Japan, Great Britain, Canada, and Washington stay at the show tonight, as well as fans from up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, Mike Johnson also said that Ring of Honor debuted the first issue of its magazine last night, which I think they actually probably introduced it earlier because michael laney our listener showed us we talked about in the last one of the most recent shows i think on the last double shot that they he had gotten the magazine there i think um last thing from mike johnson he wrote one thing i noticed at the show and was completely blown away by it even though it's been this way for months is that the promotion has tons of product for sale with over 50 to 70 dvds books action figures etc it's hard to believe this company that the company hasn't even been around for three years yet I don't know if I'm that amazed by the fact that a company that was born out of a wrestling merchandise company has a lot of merch, but still. Yeah, I don't think it's that amazing. I actually have a a question just in terms of like your analysis of stuff. Like on the one hand, I sort of get why Friday shows do worse than Saturday shows. Obviously, people are, you know, they had work that day. They're tired, whatever. Um, But like – 
I don't know, maybe it's just because of where I live, but like Friday night is still considered like a big, like going out, doing something entertaining kind of night. Like if, like, you know, like in, like I live, you know, I live in New York. Um, if there's a big event, you know, back when there were big events, um, like at a, you know, like a, a major venue in Manhattan or Brooklyn, like it's not like Friday would be at a poorly attended day. Do you think that the reason that ROH didn't draw so well on Fridays is because a lot of their venues, almost all of them, except for when they eventually came to New York City, was outside of like the central city area. Like they were like in um, suburbs and stuff, usually required, you know, long drives for a lot of the people that attended. Um, like, Joe, what, what was the, like, what's the shortest you had to drive to get to one of these ROH shows in Boston? Uh, the shortest was the Framingham show that Thanksgiving weekend with uh, the barbed wire match. That was a half hour for me. Everything else was, it, it was always like an hour to an hour and 10 minutes. This one, Revere, is actually really close to downtown Boston. So traffic was really, you know, it's usually like ah, an hour drive for me. It was took with traffic on a Friday night. It was about two hours, give or take. I just remember it being hellish. So in situations like that, I understand why people are just like, you know, because uh, I think I took off work a little early just to make sure I made it on time and was very glad I did. Yeah, and on a Friday when you know you have to drive like an hour or more to get to some place, that's going to be a major deterrent. I think it was probably hard for a small indie like ROH to get a um, to get a building like in the center of a city like that, you know, that they could afford. You know, it's amazing that they were able to get those locations they got in uh, in NYC uh, starting in uh, 05 and 06. But in every other, every, I don't like you know in Chicago. Like I know the venue in Chicago was not in the city of Chicago. You know that the Frontier Fieldhouse that was in a suburb as well. You know, I remember the Philly National Guard Armory was in Philly, but it was like, I think like, I'm not a Philly guy, but like, I think it was like way in the north of Philly. Like it was basically like, if you went there, it was like right off the highway. It was basically in the suburbs. Like, even though technically it was still in the city, it's not like it was in South Philly, like the, uh, ECW arena was. So I, I just, I just wonder if that was a cause of low attendance. Anyway, I know that was a tangent, but I'm just something that I was curious about. No. Yeah. That that's interesting. I generally think Friday. I do agree with the idea that Fridays are tougher because a lot of people just even if they get off work in time to go to a show, they just are like unless it's something they really really want to see, they just are tired and would prefer to go to bed. But at the same time, you know, there's there's the old mantra which is if you put on a show that people really want to see, all the excuses fly out the window. I mean, how many years have we watched pay per views on Sunday nights? Even though you could make the argument that you know how how many people want to stay up late on a Sunday when they have to get up early, probably to start their week on Monday, whether it's work or school. But yet, you know, if it was a big show, you never thought twice about a Sunday night show, for yeah. example. And even like in my just for like an example of me, like for my like like if I were to attend a show, let's say on a Sunday night, a work night, and I were to go to like the Barclays Center. That's a very easy trip for me, right? Like that's that's like I just hop on the train. I'm there in like less than 15 minutes. Um, whereas if I'm going to where WrestleMania was last year, which was in like New Jersey, we're talking like you know, and if the traffic is cooperative, maybe like 45 minutes by car or way longer by public transportation. Like so, just like the more central you are, I feel like the better you're going to do on a night where people have other things they have to worry about. 
Can I just also say about you guys talking about, oh, it's t- this would take me 45 minutes, or Joe even like, oh, it's taking me two hours to get to a show. I get that's his thing, but like, you know, for me to get to a major wrestling show, what it would take, like, minimum six hours each way, probably. So it's like... Would that be would that be Vancouver, or would that be Seattle? Um, I could probably go to Defy in Seattle. would probably take me anywhere between four and a half to six hours each way to get there, depending on traffic and things like that. Or Vancouver, I could probably go re- relatively the same amount of time to go to ECCW or any time, like, a major... WWE house show, not that I think I would make, I don't know if I would make a half hour trip for a WWE house show at this point but Is there, um, ha, ha, is there any wrestling event that you could think of like in the past that you said, man I, I would have driven the, the six hours to do that Um, I didn't do this but I can tell you the one I regret is I really wish I had went to WrestleMania 19 in Seattle because mm-hmm. looking at the way things are now, I will never there will probably never be a WrestleMania that close to me ever again and if there is one, I can tell you from experience, I mean, don't go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I've never been to a WrestleMania. So yeah, I mean, it, it'd be kind of nice to add that. But um, I guess we should get to actually talk about the show we all did watch, Weekend of Thunder Night 1. We open on Brian Danielson backstage. Uh, he runs down a list of his top past opponents in Ring of Honor before he says that tonight is his biggest match, though, because he's facing Jushin Thunder Liger. Brian says the Japanese press is here tonight and everyone's watching. He goes on to say he's beaten all the top juniors in New Japan, Kanemoto, Minoru Tadaka, Tiger Mask, El Samurai, everyone except one guy, Liger. Danielson says tonight he's going to beat him in the promotion he helped build and prove that he's the best wrestler in the world. So that's one of the first times he really says he's the best wrestler in the world. And I, I, I like that he threw an El Samurai there because I like El Samurai. El Samurai at this point, probably not the sexiest name drop of I've been El Samurai. It's 2004. But like, I appreciate that he mentioned him. Yeah, I agree. I also like that they're, they've had now had two shows in a row where they start with like a serious promo about the main event which I think they've done too little of. And, you know, obviously you don't want to do it every time, but I think it helps a lot. I think it really helps build up the main events. And the promo itself was perfectly solid. I know Danielson hates his promos, but this was perfectly good for his character and what he was trying to get across. And it takes so little time. It's like one minute of yeah, exactly. time. Exactly. And, you've, and you've got it. So opening match, Jimmy Rave scored to the ring by Diablo Santiago, Omar and Tatuga, and Prince Nana, and someone else we'll mention in a second, defeated Ace Steel via pinfall in 11 minutes, 18 seconds, after he hits the Rave Clash. Uh, before the match, Nana gets on the mic and he cuts a promo mocking Boston and telling a female fan that she needs to wash. Nana then hands each member of the Outcast Killers a can of air freshener to purify the air for Jimmy Rave, who he introduces at this point. So first appearance of the air freshener gimmick for the embassy. Uh, Jimmy comes out in a giant robe with a lady at his side who is Angel Williams. She was referred to at this time, but fans from more modern wrestling, you might recognize her as Angelina Love. And actually in ROH, she was referred to as nothing. (laughs) (laughs) As stool number one. Um, Because uh, in fact, um, as he comes to the Jimmy Rave comes to the ring, uh, the killer spray, the air freshener, the crowd t- chants "Die Jimmy Dive," which might be an early instance of that chant too. Uh, Jimmy's fr- lady friend jumps on the apron, and angry Nana cuts Jimmy's theme off and tells the wo- Angel Williams to step back down to the floor, get on her hands and knees, so Jimmy can get in the ring the proper way. 
She does, and Jimmy then proceeds to use her as a step stool to get to the ring apron. This is also the first time that has ever happened in Ring of Honor, which would become a staple of the gimmick. Uh, Matt, Joe, before I ask you guys what you thought of that in the match, I'll just write what Mike Johnson wrote about this. They added Angel Williams, Midwestern worker who has done some TNA matches as his valet. He's talking about Jimmy Rave here, of course. In a funny bit, Nana told her she knows what to do, and she went down to her knees, then on all fours, so Rave could use her as steps to enter the ring. Too funny! Exclamation mark. Uh, I don't know if this was too funny. Uh, you know, I guess, I mean, there's the people can talk about the argument, which is, like, yes, is it sexist and transgressive? Yes, but some people would argue, well, it's supposed to be because it's he's a heel. He's a heel, yeah. And so, I mean, I would say on the list of things Ring of Honor has done that we could say, ooh, didn't age well. Like, it's probably on the list. It's not near the top of the list. I mean, it, it, that would open up a whole debate about, you know, should heels be allowed to do really awful things if they're heels, all that stuff. Well, there's, I, I there's say, also the issue of how the crowd reacts to these heel moves. Yeah, I was going to say exactly, because the other issue is I don't think some of these fans thought it was a heel move. I thought they were like, oh, this is cool. Or as Mike Johnson would say, too funny. Uh, so, but barring that, we actually had a match from here. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this as an opener for the whole Weekend of Thunder? Well, it was it was a thunderous opener. Um, no, I, um, I, I like that they like, this match actually introduces a lot of the what Jimmy Rave's and the embassy's character is going to be for a while because it has it actually like it's cool that they, I didn't remember that they had a whole angle to introduce the uh, air fresheners because <laughs> I remember the air fresheners from the entrances but I didn't remember they were like hey everybody we're going to spray these air fresheners now and here's why like I, I like that's kind of like a good attention to detail um yeah the um the stool thing the footstool thing doesn't age well it obviously turns into a much bigger angle when once jade chung gets into the picture um yeah they they it is it is interesting that they never bother to give angel williams a name except cm punk at one point calls her uh, gonorrhea um <laughs> well what, what happens is uh, um rave does the move which is sort of like a um a neck breaker holding the leg and and gabe announces the new name of the move gonorrhea so that's another thing that they added and um and Punk is like, what? That's what it's called? I think that's the girl's name. So there's uh, there's that. But the match itself, um, I don't know. Like they, um, it was it was fine for an, an opener. I would say it was a, an opener. You know, that's kind of how I would describe. This was an opener. Um, Ace worked a headlock for a good while, which wasn't un- was one wasn't unentertaining. But you know, when the last ROH match we saw was like a mastery of side headlocks, that it doesn't you know hold up to that standard, obviously. Um, Punk does not correct Gabe this time when he calls the knee the Shining Wizard. I guess Punk's just given up. Um, <laughs> yeah, he knows that too. Yeah, um, Ace like uh, like he does this like cool like Indian deathlock into like a double underhook thing, and the crowd really likes that, and they're chanting for Rave to tap. And Nana helps Rave reach the ropes by like pushing the bottom rope toward him. Like I, I do like all like Nana's little. Like the ways that he interferes, I think he's like a really good old school um, manager. Um, you know, he's that then he get does this thing where he gets on the mic, and the announcers talk over him, so you can't totally tell what he's saying. But uh, Ace goes for some top rope thingamabob, but he gets distracted by Nana, gets crotched, Rave hits the Rave Clash, wins the match, um, and Punk says Ace was robbed. But actually, Gabe sounds more upset than Punk does. 
at the finish. Like, like Gabe's like, I can't believe it. And, and Punk is like, just so you know, Ace was robbed. Just FYI. Like, it, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, like, the Punk just... It's actually... This is the thing I've noticed about Punk's commentary a lot, which is his tone in commentary very much does not match his tone in his appearances on the show as a wrestler. You know, like, in terms of his promos and stuff. I think Punk has a hard time getting fully into the character and into like the tone when he's like recording like in post-production which makes Mm -hmm. sense i'm sure i would too but it's it is noticeable sometimes uh joe what do you think about this match uh first of all it should be noted this is coming the show comes right off the boston red sox finally winning the world series which is a plot point that comes up repeatedly yes over the night so i'm sure the heels were very upset they couldn't uh i think no, I just called it an overgrown fish market, which is not not the sickest burn you can use on Boston at that point. Uh, match itself, I thought you see Rafe's entrance and you're like, oh, man, they really have something here. I don't want to say and then the bell rang, but, you know, the entrance was certainly the most dynamic part of the match. Like Matt said, a bit too headlocky. Not bad overall. It was fine. The transition spot where Rave kind of monkey flipped steel on the apron into crotching himself on the top rope was a little weird, but, uh, you know, besides that, the work was solid enough and, uh, and Rave gets the win. So there you go. That, that spot where, yeah, where, um, they do a monkey flip on the ring apron and that leads to steel crotch on the top rope, top rope was actually my favorite spot of the match because it was like the most memorable thing. I mean, this was a very average match. It was just moves and your typical ending, which has been on most Rave matches, which is, He's starting to lose near the end, and Nana grabs the house mic and encourages him, and then he basically almost hulks up. Not really, but he makes a comeback, and he wins. He should. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, I, I thought um, – I, I did agree like you guys. I thought the headlocks was a bit of an odd choice because uh, he went to it fairly long. A Steel did fairly early, and he's the face in this match. And usually you would find headlocks to be something you would do maybe later in the match to catch your breath or as a, as a, as a heel to like get sympathy for the face and get the crowd to really get behind a big comeback. But instead, Ace is just doing it as the baby face, like early on in the match. And that, that's, why really... called, that's why they call him Crazy Ace Steel. He does those headlocks too early. <laughs> And there was also a spot where Ace does a spring forward, like double sledge, and he comes up way short. He just barely gets even like close to Rave to hit it. Uh, something must have hurt Rave in this match. He's bleeding from the nose. I noticed at the end just a little bit, almost like a little Hitler, a.k.a. Michael Jordan mustache of blood at one point for him. Boy, it must, uh, boy, it must suck for Michael Jordan to have like that be what that mustache is called now. I mean, he made the choice. He 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 made that stash after Hitler, so uh, that, that's on MJ. That's not that's not on anyone else. Um, maybe he's trying to reclaim it for that when he did that in that Hanes commercial or whatever through the loom, whatever underwear commercial he did. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, the match it just was a collection of moves. It didn't really have a story. I think the the most interesting thing watching this and Matt, you talked about it, which is like. It feels like Rave is this guy. He had so many little parts of his act as a heel when he was really over, and they don't come all at once. It feels like a show or two ago. I don't know if this was the first show he had the robe or if it was a show or two ago, but, you know, the robe. The music. Um, this was a debut of his his music that he has for a long time, too. Yeah, and then even now he has the Rave Clash, but later he'll have the greetings from Ghana, the pedigree, which is a big thing. He doesn't have the toilet paper yet. It's, it feels like every couple shows he's getting another thing at so like this show you get the air freshener you get the music you get um the woman being the step stool but it feels like there's like seven or eight things that are parts of his act 
and and they all kind of you know he's not one guy that's like fully complete when he turns heel. Where the next show it's like man he's got all these things. It's like they they get added over the course of months and months, which is cool to see in a way. Um, cut to Lacey backstage for a promo. She says she drove all the way to Boston only to be informed that her boyfriend Izzy isn't even allowed to be here until he cleans up his act. She says now she's stuck here with these special K losers, but she came here for more, more, more than that. And we're all going to see what that is very soon. Very soon was not be this night. Also, I thought it was kind of weird that the promo made it kind of seemed like she, Lacey was surprised that her boyfriend wasn't at the show, which Seems like something she should know, but I guess this was kind of covering up for something because Izzy, in fact, was supposed to be in the next match, but um, he was unable to get to the show. So, in fact, Dunn was substituted for the next match in the next match, which is well. Actually, before you do, before you say that, oh, yeah, I, do, I do want to say, Lacey says she's come here for more than just hanging out with the Special K losers, and we're soon to find out that what that more is is hanging out with the Special K losers, but they wear different outfits and they're not called Special K. <laughs> She's she's here to like give them a makeover. So um, exactly. Next up, Homicide defeats Angel Dust, Dunn, and Fast Eddie in eleven fifty one in a four corners match. When Homicide pins Angel Dust after he hits the cop killer, um, Joe, definitely a rarity at this point to see Homicide in like kind of a random undercard multi man match, second from the bottom, but. Um, without tipping my hat, what did you think about what about this match? You, you know, definitely a different situation for Homicide at this point. Yeah, it, not much suspense in who was going to win this match, because given Homicide was just leagues above the other three. And like you said, uh, you you know Izzy was supposed to be here. That would have probably furthered the Izzy uh, Angel Dust Special K split storyline when Dunn was in there, and you know the match is. It was it was awkward at points. There was some okay some okay work, but I, I think done being a late substitution. There were just a lot of sloppy points. There also was like a dive sequence the crowd was going nuts for, so it wasn't a total waste. But it was just kind of you know just kind of a match. We we're just waiting for Homicide to win, and then he did in the end. I actually like this. Will be one of those fun ones where matches where we have three people on where we have a tie break because I actually was surprised how much I like this match. I mean, it wasn't anything special, but I thought this was like an outright good four way. And why I liked it is because it was a different dynamic than most four ways, where rather than like four guys at the same point in the card that are all just trying their best to do crazy high spots to impress in like eight minutes, like this had this interesting dynamic of. Homicide is out of place. He's a bigger star. He he shouldn't be on a match this low. And he kind of wrestled that way. Like early on, he had felt like he was pissed off that he was even getting tagged into the match. When there is that big dive train that you talked about, Joe, where, you know, crowds going crazy and everyone's hitting big dives. And the, all the dives, by the way, in, in this dive train, they all look like they, each guy nearly killed themselves. Like it, each one barely went right. But I like that even after he takes all those dives on the dive train, then Homicide's reaction is to like get up, grab a chair and just to go to town. Like he's just he's not put up with this shit. He's not happy to be in this match. And I thought this match did a good job of, you know, it was just your more action spot oriented four way. But I like the vibe of homicide like it didn't feel quite like a squash but it did feel like homicide was clearly above all these guys like i thought it was a good kind of showcase maybe not for everything homicide can do in a match but for kind of making homicide just remind you like he's a big star he's on a higher level than 
the people on the bottom half of a Ring of Honor card. And he, he came off that way, especially near the end where he's trying to get pins on everybody, but the ref has to, has to keep telling him it's not the legal man. But basically, he's just dominating everyone by the end of the match, and he actually wins with the um, with the cop killer. Matt, uh, where do you fall on this? Is it just kind of a botchy four-way that Homicide shouldn't have been in, or was it kind of a surprise? Um, I think I'm in the middle of you two. I, I don't think it was like an outright good four-way, but I think it was more enjoyable than the recent ones that we've seen. Um, by the way, I had just thought of a new name for a type of match that's not quite a squash. It's a zucchini. So um, <laughs> this match was a kind of a zucchini, like, you know, Homicide. He, he sold a little bit, but he was most – and he gave some time for the other guys to do some stuff. But it was mostly uh, a um, a showcase for him. Like one thing I didn't like about the match – was like like they made a big deal on recent shows about enforcing the rules and and Hansen is very um strict about like the legal man stuff but he also just lets homicide just beat the other three up with a chair and it's just annoying it's like are you gonna enforce the rules or not if you're not like whatever just don't but like don't pretend you are that that's irritating and distracting to me um by the way um they announced what julia smokes is not there for the third show in a row and the reason that they give on commentary is that, as Joe mentioned, the Red Sox had just won the World Series. So Julius Smokes was in jail because he was caught peeing on Fenway Park. They <laughs> mentioned this multiple times throughout the show. This isn't like just like a, a thrown off thing. Like they say it a few times. And then Punk says that Becky Bayless isn't there because she got caught taking a piss on Santa Claus, which <laughs> I, I guess that means they were recording this uh this commentary maybe closer to Christmas time. Uh, that's the only, uh, I don't, otherwise, I don't understand why this would come up. But okay, um, um, that that gets a legit like you can tell Gabe's like stifling laughter, like yeah. a legit moment where he's trying not to break. Like you can hear it in his voice when he says that Becky Bayless got caught taking a piss on a Santa Claus. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous; it made me laugh. Yeah, it's it's very absurd. Um, the um, but yeah, I would say uh, this match is uh, – I'd say it's b- better than recent four ways. I don't think that it's that great. Oh, one one fun thing. Um, two matches in a row, Punk gets to call a hold a Royal Octopus because Ace Steel does one in the first match and Homicide does it in the second. And no one has ever called that move on commentary before, but Punk does it. I still can't totally picture what a Royal Octopus is in my head, but I know that I watched it twice on this show. So that's fun. Octopus wearing a crown, duh. (laughs) Uh, um, um, After the match, Homicide tosses Angel Dust out of the ring. Uh, There was a funny little moment. They didn't really focus on it, but uh, Cheech was at ringside as uh, part of the Special K crew. Uh, During the match when uh, the crowd was chanting, Yankees suck, to Homicide, he got so mad at one point, he tore off one of the turnbuckle covers. And so at the end of the match, after it's over, you can see Cheech. He grabs the turnbuckle cover and he hands it to Fast Eddie like, you did a good job, man. Here, here's a turnbuckle cover. And you can just see like Fast Eddie's like not impressed by this gift I wrote in my notes. It's like a funny little weird moment the camera catches. Anyway, uh, Homicide grabs the mic and he says, fuck Boston, fuck the Red Sox, fuck Pedro Martinez. Homicide then calls Pedro Martinez a slur I will not repeat. I will just say it's an ethnic slur. 
And uh, Homicide really having a hell of a run in 2004 in terms of saying things that either were edited out or should be edited out of home releases. Um, he then points out how many championships the Yankees have won. And then at this point, a fan jumps into the ring. I'll say fan in quotation marks. Homicide and the pitbull stomp on him as people rush to pull him out of the ring. Uh, he tries to escape, but the Rottweilers follow suit. Even low key comes out at this point and they keep attacking him. They pull off his shirt. They follow him, chase him into the crowd before they give up. Homicide looks into the camera and says, cut that shit off. Um, I yeah, really this, don't, I really don't like this work, this work shoot stuff. It almost never works. I don't think it worked here. It went on too long. What was the point? Yeah. And, um, it seems like Homicide's involved in a lot of this work shoot stuff, like more often than any other wrestler. And it's just, yeah, I, I, a, a fan that gave a live report to PW Insider wrote at the time, his name is James Brown, not the Godfather of Soul, although wouldn't that be cool if it was? But he wrote, after a plant ran in with a Red Sox hat, which most people thought was for real. Too bad I've seen this kid sit inside the rails every show. But yeah, like um, I, I guess this was actually a student from the Ring of Honor school. And so if you kind of were doing a lot of shows, you would probably have recognized him. But but fun fact, yeah, that, like, fun fact that actually was written by uh, the godfather of soul, James Brown. Just <laughs> just fun fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've talked about in the past, too, with some of the riot stuff. Like, I don't think in general it's a great idea to do angles where the fans run in because where you pretend fans run in because you're kind of sending a message then that – I guess they could say, well, this discourages fans because look what happens. He gets the shit beat out of him. But I, I think, you know, we talked about this in the past where Dave Meltzer wrote, like, if you look at the history of wrestling, if you start doing angles where fans run in, more fans actually do generally seem to run in afterwards because they just – people imitate what they see. I know? feel like and, Ring of Honor crowds are a little bit different though. Like, you know, any sort of like s- – s- for lack of a better term, smart, marky, indie crowd, you're going to get – it's less of a risk. Like, it's not a zero risk, but it's less of a risk than when you're trying to appeal to the general public. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. And one other thing we talk about, we hate the work shoots. I guess one other note is later on during the tag title match on commentary, Punk references this attack again. And then Gabe gets all uncomfortable. He's like, that's not making it to the tape, Punk. And I hate, yeah, I hate when that. Ring of Honor does this where they act like something isn't going to make tape when it clearly has. Like in, in the in the kayfabe world of Ring of Honor, they have the worst production people ever because their shows are filled with people saying that was edited out or that won't make the tape on segments that you see on the tape. Like it, it just you would think they would get they would get wise to that. In we, the we, world we, of we, we always watch the director's cut. Not the real, exactly. not the real edit. Yeah, I, 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 did, I was like questioning whether this was real at the time because this guy didn't really look like a wrestler when he ran in. No offense to him, but you know, Ring of Honor had gone down this road so many times that you know, get into a boy who cried wolf situation at that point. And yeah. and they are and they are always crying wolf because I don't think anything like that really happened. And also, you know, of course, watching it on video, like if it was real, it literally would not have made the video. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. We cut to backstage. Allison Danger says that tonight she has a message for Moth and Whitmer. Tonight they're not getting out of here alive. They're not going to survive this weekend. She reminds us that she owns their contracts and she she says they lay against her body every night as she sleeps and dreams of bathing in their blood. Uh, Danger then randomly grabs a hockey stick from out of frame. <laughs> that was my favorite part. No, 
<laughs> yeah, which was a shock, and says it's not going to end here. I wrote in my notes, holy shit, this was a thing. It was definitely like a unhinged, like the idea, the mental imagery of I sleep with your contracts pressed against my body as I dream of breathing in your blood. And then she just grabs an off screen hockey stick. Like I was, it was memorable. I'll say that much. It was yeah. memorable. She's going for some sort of like psychosexual like thing there. Um, but like, yeah, the hockey stick was some. Primo ad-libbing, I have to say. And that brings us to a Boston street fight. What makes it a Boston street fight? The fact that it's in Boston, although technically not even in Boston. Uh, the Carnage crew, DeVito and Loke, defeat BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff in 7 minutes, 51 seconds, when Loke pins Moff after he hits a concerto with two trash cans, or as Gabe Sapolsky would call it, a contrash can co. That is the finish of this match. Um... This was more of the same. This was probably my least favorite part of the show. Um, if you've seen one Carnage Crew Moth and Whitmer brawl or one Carnage Crew uh, Natural Born uh, or, um, no, the Hit Squad brawl, you know, you've seen this and it's the same thing pretty much every time. I, I like brawls I, when they're done well. I like weapons matches. We've seen Moth and Whitmer this year in 2004 have a great weapons brawl with uh, Punk and A Steel. This was not, this is like a lot of these Carnage Crew brawls. It's just everyone, a bunch of guys bleed almost immediately. You get maybe some chair shots. You get a bunch of guys getting thrown into the guardrail over, over. You, then it goes into the ring. You get a couple of minutes of like basic wrestling and then it ends. It, we just, it's, it's the same thing over and over again as the kind of match that isn't even that fun the first time. And, but when you see it more than once, it, it, it's just it's pretty boring and um the novelty is gone i'm sure it was fun if you're in the front row i guess the one kind of interesting spot is there's a ddt on the ramp so the first show we already get a ramp spot and it's a metal ramp so we get that um punk at, at one point when uh whitmer is getting beat up he asked gabe if he's ever punched a horse before so i love that punk is not letting go even though that gabe has stopped doing it He's long since stopped doing it. That Punk can't let go of the fact that Gabe used to call BJ Whitmer a horse. So he's like, Gabe, you ever punch a horse before? And then Punk says, I punched a horse one time when it was chewing on my hand. And it was a story way too specific for it to be to be like a lie. Like you could it sounded like Gabe, like Punk really did have an incident where he probably went to a petting zoo or something and punched a horse. It happened. Um Late in the match, Allison Danger appears. She brings two garbage cans to the ring. She tries to throw them into the ring. Both times, she can't get them over the ropes. They just fall, hit against the ropes and fall back to the floor. Moth will then, shortly after, throw a chair at Danger, and it hits her. I don't know if it was supposed to hit her, but it fucking hits her. He throws it from the ring to her at ringside. hits her like a closed chair. And she stumbles back to the back. BJ gives chase. And then Punk on commentary at that point wonders, how many times has BJ Whitmer chased a girl in a prom dress like that? He says, probably too many to count. Uh, so that was a good one. Yeah. Um, Matt, I, I thought that again, boring, repetitive. I just wrote my notes tired of this quite possibly the worst ring of honor feud of this year, especially considering the fact that like, this is one of those feuds where even though Gabe always recaps, like the matches that led up to it, like, I don't know what this feud is about. The fact that I've watched all these matches, I can't remember what started it. Like, it's <laughs> just a feud about nothing, you know, and the matches aren't good. It's, 
it's just a low point in Ring of Honor, I think, for 2004. Uh, the Carnage crew had their feelings hurt. That's where this all started. <laughs> is, that, is, that worse, is that worse than getting sh- yeah. your bag shit in? Like I was going to say, you know, for as much as everyone makes fun of the shit in the bag storyline, we all remember that. Like I at least like maybe not for the maybe not for the reasons they intended. I remember the shit in, ba- in the bag storyline. I remember that storyline is about you know Masada feels like he was a member of the Carnage Crew, but like they stopped fighting for him to get bookings. Even though I'm watch, I'm in the middle of watching this feud. I can't really tell you much about about it. Like I can't. I won't remember this match in two weeks. Well, but Matt, yeah. what did you think? I mean, I, I rarely say this in recent times, but like this match sucked, right? Like, didn't it? It wasn't just like a, a crappy match. Like, they uh, it, it falls apart. Like, it's not like they're not working hard. Like, so it doesn't stink in that way. But like, I don't know. It's just meandering. It's plotting. You know, maybe there's like one cool spot where Loke does like a running body press onto Whitmer, sending them both over the barricade into the crowd. Like, but like otherwise, it's just walking around. You know, carving each other up. Throwing each other into guardrails. Um, and Punk, like, screws them over right at the beginning by saying, like, will this live up to the sh- to a Chicago street fight that we just that we just saw? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, no, it's definitely not. Like, that's, but it also didn't live up to, like, even, like, other bad Moffin Whitmer versus Carnage crew matches. I feel like DeVito tries too hard with some of these things, like, where he's like, you just like randomly yelling, like, we're fucking Ring of Hardcore. And then, like, when Allison Dager gets in his face, he's like, fuck you, you know, and calls her a bitch or something. Like, it's just like, like, he just like, I don't know, I appreciate his promos, but like, when he's actually yelling in the match, I feel like it's like, you, you can, you, you don't have to, <laughs> doesn't add that much to what you're doing. Um, it's what I, one thing I found funny is that Gabe called the match a bloodbath, but like, None of the blade jobs were that visually impressive. Not that they had to be, but I wouldn't look at this match and be like, "Wow, what a bloodbath." Um, it one one other thing I noticed, like when they were doing the contrast can co, um, BJ was like chasing Danger like to the entranceway, and then he was just like standing by the entrance for like kind of a long time, like doing something to Allison Danger that they didn't show on camera. Like you just saw BJ back there, like kind of like moving around a little bit. And it's like, what's happening back there? And even Punk is like, what is BJ doing? (laughs) (laughs) And then obviously Punk loses and then BJ runs in to save him, but he's too late. So he gets beat with the trash can too. Um, Yeah, I just, I don't like this at all. I think it's just, just bad. (laughs) Joe, I mean... Are you going to be three for three on this, or did you actually love this? Were you in the front row and you were just like, you know what? I got some of DeVito's blood on my shoe. I'll never forget this night. Is that that's that's what you're thinking though, right, Joe? Oh, if I got DeVito's blood on my shoe, maybe Angela Love could have cleaned it up afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I haven't seen the show in ten plus years, and I still remember CM Punk saying, "Here comes Allison Danger and the trash can she lives in." <laughs> oh yeah, that, that, is, that was that was definitely the line of the uh, tackling with delight when yeah. she failed to throw it into the ring. Those were, CM Punk was the MVP of the first uh, couple matches on the show for certain. Yes. No, this was just kind of you know everyone worked hard. It was just kind of like oh, I've seen this all a bunch of times, and I don't know. We really needed uh, Babyface gets distracted by someone on the outside. Two in the three, two out of the three uh, matches to, to start the show, and the only other highlight was as soon as. Gabe said, uh, "Was it Con Trash Can Co? Yeah. Whatever." Immediately, you know, there's a second pause, and then he immediately says, "Well, that's what it's called." Like, as if he, 
everyone's thinking like, what the hell are you talking about? That's like his automatic response. But no, this was this is nothing for no one. Yeah, and, and I, I want to make clear, I agree with both you guys that these guys worked hard, but it was a below average match. But it wasn't that the, you could tell the effort level was there. It just, it's plotting and too much of the same thing. Yeah, but, maybe the, maybe these these teams just don't have good chemistry. It happens. Exactly. Yeah. Again, like Moth and Whitmer had a great weapons brawl, you know, with a different team. But after the match, uh, Danger gets in the ring and she screams at the current crew to kill Moth and Whitmer. DeVito says, as Matt talked about earlier, fuck you, whore. And Loke then spits in her face. I just wrote, lovely. Uh, Danger slaps a Ooh, fallen funny. Moth and says the blood on her hand is not enough. Uh, BJ gets up but uh, and starts to go after her, but Allison escapes, and she's licking Moff's blood off her hand. Um, I guess that's a striking image, you know, but again, this is another thing where we've, even though we've probably only seen this a few times, it's just so repetitive, it feels like we've seen this a million times, where Allison Danger goes to one of Moff and Whitmer's matches, and it, if they win... She gets mad at the opposing team for not winning. If they if they lose, she gets on the mic and tells the opposing team to kill them. And it happens, and then they chase her away. And I know it's all supposed to be building to, you know, we'll see in a promo later, it's all supposed to be building to Moth and Whitmer are going to get their hands on Alice in Danger and, and, you know, do a spot to her and hurt her. But then it's like, that's not a novelty in Ring of Honor. This is a promotion that had man-on-woman violence, every, including on Alice in Danger. She's taken the, the cop killer. So, like, I guess you could say if this was a promotion that never had man-on-woman violence, there might be more intrigue because you could go, it's all building to a woman taking the first bump in Ring of Honor history from a guy. But instead, it, it's it's like, oh, you're going to see something you never see in Ring of Honor, a woman getting hit by a man. It's like, no, we we see this constantly almost (laughs) but um so yeah that's another i thought another weird element of it but that brings us to loki another kind of early placement on the card for a big name loki defeats chad collier via pinfall in 17 minutes 35 seconds after he hits a top rope double stomp after interference um Matt, this story, this match is more about, maybe more about story than the match. This is about a match that features Loki working a knee and a leg injury, an ankle injury. Mike Johnson wrote in his notes from this show, he wrote, and I quote, it was a great twist on a spot seen a million times because Ring of Honor management even thought it was a legit injury. Matt, what do you think about this match? And do you think that Ring of Honor really thought this was a legit injury? I mean... I, I mean, my gut tells me absolutely not, but also it is low key. Um, so I guess anything is possible. Um, but my, if I you, if I had to put money on it, I would say no. They did not think it was a legit injury. It was a something that they in fact booked themselves. I guess it depends on who management is. Like like, are they counting Gabe in this, or are they just saying like 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 they worked Carrie and like Sid or whoever? Like you know, I guess that's possible. I feel like Gabe probably was involved in the booking of the match, um, but yeah, I um, I don't know. I could say this, assuming this wasn't Loki going into business for himself by working a, an injury. I um, I think this match probably would count as a little bit overbooked. Um, like early in the match, so basically Collier's in control early in the match. Um, he's doing lots of hold. Punk says Chad Collier is one of his favorite wrestlers, which I guess that's nice for Chad. To <laughs> that's a good endorsement, but. Um, you know, Collier works over um, Loki, and then Loki like 
he he gets thrown out to the floor and he gets monkey lip but monkey flip but lands on his feet but then he starts favoring his ankle after that and he lets like Collier like works over his legs and Loki seems a bit off and he seems like you know he's like he's selling he's out of sorts he he's trying to fight back but he's really favoring the leg he's like falls down after a kick he's trying to take off his boot like the ref tries to keep Collier away and the ref holds up the dreaded X and Gabe's like oh we've got a promo standing by. So they cut to Strong and Evans, uh, and 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 Evans says Romero got beat by the white suburban boy last time, so they're going to take it home. And you know this man. Um, and they, <laughs> they they cut right back to um, to Gabe, and he's like very mournfully saying the match is over, and you hate to see it. So of course uh, Loki cheap shots Collier with a kick, and Gabe yells that motherfucker, which. Um, I don't know. I, th- I feel like probably people have different reactions to this. I actually enjoy Gabe overreacting to to Loki all the time. I think it adds a little bit of flavor to like Loki matches that Gabe clearly hates him so much. Um, yeah. But the thing about this is, you know, with these ROH crowds, heel Loki gets the biggest pop of the night and a Loki chant. So it's is it just hard to get the crowd to boo Loki? I guess that's basically what it is, right? There's really nothing he could have done. But. Um, you know, I don't know how I feel about. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that first bit before I talk about the rest of the match, or you want me to just do the rest. But uh, uh, no, you can finish. You go ahead and finish. Okay, because I don't totally know how I feel about that opening segment. I mean, it was interesting, I guess, but like, I don't know, maybe more than it needed to be. But anyway, after that, Loki is is on is in control. He's he's knocking him around, throwing him into the guardrails. Um, puts he puts Collier in an over the shoulder backbreaker, which is like impressive for one and like i've never seen him do that it's like a bruno san martino backbreaker i was very surprising to see that um so collier you know he's he's the valiantly fighting back baby face gets gets cut off with what else and eye poke um and um you know eventually loki i mean uh, collier comes back he uh he, he still works on the knee even though i guess that was a work injury um he does a German suplex, but Loki lands on his feet and tries to kick, but Collier turns it into a dragon screw. Then he gets the clover leaf. Loki struggles to the ropes, but Collier drags him into the center, and that gets a really big pop. Um, then, since there's no smokes, Reyes is there to jump on the apron and distract the ref, and Collier releases the hold to attack him. And then Loki blocks another clover leaf. Um, Reyes gives Collier a cheap shot. Loki hits a clothesline, gets the dragon clutch. Um, and Collier escapes and gets a wacky roll-up, which Gabe says is called the toilet flush. Um, so remember, <laughs> on the last show, you were talking about how Gabe doesn't. We don't. We, he doesn't ask wrestlers their moves. He must have like heard you in the future because he's he's throwing out a lot of move names tonight. Gonorrhea. Oh, all the, the toilet times, flush. the toilet flush and the gonorrhea. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the concerto. Like trash can co. It's like I made the wish on a monkey's paw and got it in like the worst way possible. It's like now you're going to hear a lot of specific move names and they're all going to be horrible. Yeah, I, I definitely – well, gonorrhea stuck um, yeah. as, as, you know, as it can do. Um, the toilet flush though, um, I don't remember hearing that after this, but we'll see uh, as we keep, because we keep watching the shows. Um, so – so Collier actually gets on another cloverleaf, but now Romero distracts the ref. He comes out of nowhere. So Collier has Loki, Loki up on top. Reyes knocks him off. Key comes off with the uh, the double stomp, the uh, the Warriors way, as it came to be called, and won the match. Um, I I didn't really like the first part of the match, as I said, 
but I did enjoy the last few minutes. I thought there was some good drama there, good heel stuff. I thought it turned into a pretty a pretty solid match. Um, I just don't totally know how I feel about the way they got there. Uh, Joe, what do you think about this? It's definitely different from like what you would expect when you see a lo- when you go to see a low key match at this point in his career. Yeah, very early on there was this really great mat wrestling segment, and you know you you kind of wish they'd gone that route and, and had the match go that way. I thought for what they did, they did it very well. It just wasn't quite the type of match I wanted to see. But I mean, I, you know, it wasn't like low keys like oh, you know, he kind of gradually sold it, and the announcers know like oh, he's having trouble with that leg, and eventually he just you know kind of collapses on the mat, and <laughs> he took a his leg took a real beating during this. So I don't know if it was the best plan, but. You know, they they cut to the fake interview and come back, and you know, I, I did think that was well done. And you know, again, we see a babyface. You know, a Collier came across such an idiot, letting go of the clover leaf. You know, he had Loki in the middle of the ring. You know, even if the ref was distracted, Loki wasn't going anywhere. I thought he came across looking like a dope there, but you know, a, a good match, and yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. I would kind of wish they had gone somewhere else, but uh, I also enjoyed Punk calling Loki a uh, thug life golem. <laughs> that was a great line. Yeah, uh, punk punk was on to, to on this night for sure. Uh, by the way, as far as a uh, call, you're looking like a dope. That definitely does fit the character that he portrays in his promos. So at least it's consistent. The the, the character of a guy that would name a move the toilet flush. You mean? Uh, yes, exactly. I, I think one of the biggest discoveries I've had in 2004 Ring of Honor on rewatch is I, for, I forgot or didn't realize just how drastically low-key changed how he wrestled at, when he became a heel. Like, if you watch this, I, I think heel low-key in this era is would be pretty divisive for anyone revisiting it or who was watching it at the time because he really takes away most of the flashiness and most of the athletic stuff. Like like you noted, Matt, he's doing like over-the-shoulder backbreaker, like even when, which is impressive, but like not the flashy kind of offense you'd expect from a low-key. When he gets on offense in the second half of this match, he's just doing stuff like grabbing, you know, Collier and ramming him back first into the guardrail, like very basic offense. The only cool, like flashy, typical low-key move he breaks out is the double stomp, which is the very, which is the finish of the match. And I definitely, you watch him, you know, it's not just the eye pokes and stuff like that. He's making a conscious effort to take away a lot of what makes him exciting or flashy. And that's not to say you can't have good matches without it, but if you came in expecting the, to see the low key of 2002, you're not getting anything close to that. Although I'm very and curious quickly, to see what that what happens on the when he's in the main event with Liger on the next show, because you know that might change for that match. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely curious too, and um, it, it, I think it all comes down to like people have different theories. Like there are some people, I think Jimmy Rave has talked about this before, which is the belief that. A heel shouldn't do really flashy, exciting moves because that's going to naturally get the crowd to want to instinctively pop for you and you're the heel. And so some wrestlers feel like when you become a heel, you really need to kind of strip away your your coolest, flashiest stuff. And clearly, Loki's trying to do that in these some of these matches. And there are other wrestlers who feel like, no, if you're a heel, you still try and give the best match possible. You just add cheating. You add stuff like that. And it's just two different philosophies. But I can see some people hating this. Um, 
like you guys said, I thought the the injury was done well. You know, Ring of Honor they tried to do it different by cutting away to that promo and 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 doing the X and all that stuff. But especially, I thought I really liked that Loki chose to sell that the injury happened just on landing on a monkey flip, like on a completely kind of innocuous spot. Because a lot of times, legit injuries don't happen on the spots that you would feel like they would. A lot of times people, wrestlers get injured on something that's just like a very simple kind of, oh, they just stepped wrong. They landed wrong. And I think the mistake they made, if they wanted it to be like really fool the crowd, although I guess it did fool some people live, I would have is they low-key keeps wrestling for like a minute or two after, and he'll sell, but then do a spot and kind of sell that it hurts. But I feel like if as soon as he had landed finding his ankle, they had immediately just done the X and then stopped the match. I think it, that would have been so abrupt off such a simple spot. I think that would have been like probably fooled everybody. But the fact that they tried to kind of have their cake and eat it too and do the match for a minute or two first to really, I guess, maybe, I don't know, just try and sell it more. I think it actually, the, the longer you work, he worked, the more apparent it becomes that it's not a real injury, even though his selling was good. But as for the match itself, like I think it was more about just telling that story and about key being a heel than having a good match. Like Joe said, there was some fat fun mat work at the start, but like in a way I would say it's a disappointing match. Cause I would only say in terms of like the action it's average. And I feel like these two could have a much better match if key wasn't trying to be a heel. But if you are a fan of just something different, or if you, again, subscribe to that belief that a heel shouldn't be like doing every cool flashy thing they know how to do. Well, then key's doing like a great performance in some of these matches like tonight. So it just depends. Um, and I'm just going to scroll down to my notes quickly. Oh, yeah. Keevan, like, you know, like he teased like he was going to put Collier through a table. He sets up the table. And, you know, the, the whole key heel character is about not giving fans what they want, which, again, it, it's one way to go. Um, Matt, I agree with you, too. I love that Gabe is extra angry at low key all the time. Like, because it is one of those things that does probably have a little bit of business in reality because, you know, Key's been a pain in his ass, you, you know, booking him through all this time. But um, that's that match. And that brings us to our last match of the first half of the show. I believe this was the last thing before intermission. John Walters and Nigel McGinnis defeated Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe in 18 minutes, 10 seconds, when Nigel made Jay Lethal submit to his weird arm submission lock. He was trying to kind of make a finisher at this point. I still don't have a good way of describing it or giving it a name. Joe, before I throw it to you, I, I just want to say, this is something I realized about this match. I don't know if anyone else did. And I got kind of ashamed at how excited I got when I realized this. Um, John Walters is coming into this match as the pure wrestling champion. He loses the pure title next year to Jay Lethal, who loses the title to Samoa Joe, who loses the title to Nigel McGuinness. The pure champion and the next three pure champs are all in this match. This is basically a glimpse of the future. I know that's incredibly dorky that I even care about that. Uh, Joe, what did you think about the match itself? That had not occurred to me either, so there you go. I thought this was a really strong <laughs> match. I thought uh, Samoa Joe was out of this world in this match, and Walters may have been the least impressive of the four. Not that he was bad, but it's probably not what you want, given the story being told of the pure title trying to match up to, to the world title. And they set it up so Walters could get the, the hot tag, make a comeback. He was the hometown guy. I wish they kind of had Joe or Lethal get the extended heat, and then Joe made a hot tag, which they, they kind of did a little later in the match, and we got a brief glimpse of that. 
Uh, I also love Joe just kind of cutting the Gordian knot and, and booting Nigel in the face immediately when he tries his headstand after he had success with it on Lethal earlier in the match. And, um, yeah, uh, Punk made an interesting comment that Joe hates being put in cravats. And, you know, I'm sure he'd hate any wrestling move being applied to him. I don't know what makes cravats uh, so special. And uh, we got to hear uh, Roll On by The Living End for quite a while afterwards as uh, Nigel's theme song. So that made it even better. But I thought this was really really strong wrestling anchored by Joe. Yeah, I, I thought this was very good. I was surprised how good this was. Not that the talent isn't there, but it's just kind of feels like slightly random, even though it's, you don't usually see Joe working both nights of a double shot as champ in tag matches, but like, and, and this low on the card, but this was, I would call this like a very good match. I would, if I had to give it like a star, I would say like three and three quarter stars, like right under four, just a really fun kind of match. Lots of action in this. There isn't like a ton of story except for the fact that, and this is one of my favorite parts of this match is Joe, what I really like is Joe and Walters, but especially Joe wrestle this, like, you know, they really don't like each other. And there's an extra intensity between those two. And then lethal and Nigel don't like slack off by any means, but they wrestle this like they don't have any emotional skin in the game, which is how it should, because the storyline is that Joe always hates whoever's the pure champ because he resents that there's a second singles title now and that he's been, you know, occasionally kind of shitting on John Walters and mocking him and treating him like he's lower. And so they wrestle the match that way where Joe's, kind of this is in a way it's it's not a squash or even a zucchini like the way um the forks way <laughs> match was with homicide was but it is is kind of similar to that match in that joe definitely feels like he's on a whole other level than the other three not just in how good he is but just like he's carrying himself like like he's the top star and that these three you know are mid-card guys which maybe in walter's case isn't the greatest thing for him but just a lot of good action. Everyone looked good, but I agree with Joe that Samoa Joe looked the best. I agree with Joe Gagne that Samoa Joe looked the best. Too many Joes. And um, I I think that, that Joe giving the boot to Nigel in the headstand, that perfectly fits with Joe's whole persona of the guy who just doesn't fo- get fooled a lot. Like, you know, Joe's the same guy that just walks away from guys doing high-flying moves off the top rope rather than, like, roll away at the last second. Like, it fits Joe's character perfectly, and it was just cool because I think this is the first time in Ring of Honor that we saw someone counter the Nigel headstand by just like, not getting fooled or suckered in or, like, standing back and going, hmm, should I walk in or should I just stay far away? Like, Joe just immediately is like, fuck you, I'm not an idiot, just kicks him right in the head. And um, just a lot of good action. Even the end, I, I liked where um, Joe gets kind of too into beating up Walters on the outside, so he kind of, that leaves Lethal alone without someone watching his back. And so lethal loses and nigel of course getting the win here sets up a future match down the line i i i but again joe star of this match he does there's a great moment in this match where uh, nigel hits a super kick and joe does this like stumble sell where he kind of stumbles and then falls which i thought was just like a great sell um yeah like this is a i would put this in the hidden gem um category this is this is a hidden gem uh matt do you agree yeah, I agree. I think it was a really good match. Um, I like the concept of um, of like just like the idea of like the two up and comers paired with the two champions. Uh, the only thing I would have appreciated is a promo setting it up. Um, feels kind of out of nowhere to me. 
Um, so I would have, you know, like they, they kept in all the entrances on this show. If they had maybe just cut some of the entrances, added a promo about this match, I think it would have been perfect. Um, no, but I agree with everything you said. The, um, the, the moment where Joe is, cause you know, with the headstand stuff over the years, through the years, we see a lot of people counter that, but we haven't up until now on our rewatch. Joe's the first guy who does it, which makes perfect sense. He's the best wrestler. He's the champion. And he doesn't give a shit, like you said. So I really like that. The one negative moment in the match, I would say, was Lethal really botched an arm drag on John Walters. Like, it was just... I don't know if it was botched. It was just, it was a bad arm drag. Like, it just didn't look good. Um, but he followed it up with, like, the loudest chop I've ever heard him do. And it gets a really big holy shit chant. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Um, Walters also hits a particularly brutal-looking lung blower on lethal also um but but otherwise i think you know i don't really have much to add to what you guys said it was it was a really good match good pace good action good story told um and very exciting i you know it's another loss for jay lethal but i guess they decided like of the four he's the one who could take the loss um but but no very good match yes i would say hidden gem for sure and and it's worth noting that um they did give Jay a fair bit here. Like, he got to kick out of the Tower of London, and he got to kick out of a lung blower, I think. So they gave him a, a fair bit to survive. And it, it's one of those matches where, like, Punk, at the end of the match, he puts over the tag as one hell of a match. And you can tell, like, it's genuine. Like, he's impressed rewatching it, how good it is. And again, it's not a classic, but it's better than you'd expect for this spot on the card, usually. Like, a match this good at this point in Ring of Honor history. And, uh yeah. So, um, PW Insider reporter or fan who wrote into them, James Brown wrote, The Godfather of Soul, he wrote, After the bout, Joe challenged Nigel one-on-one next time in Boston on January 15th. Nigel accepted and cut a very odd promo. He seemed like a little kid almost. He is in it to win it, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll note that another, um, I forget where, but I saw another live uh, report that said that Nigel's promo was not good at all. And we should, I'll point out, it did not make the home release. So, Joe, yes. do you have any memories live of Nigel cutting a bad promo, setting up his match with Joe early next year? Oh, all I see from my... I don't remember it offhand, but I'm checking my show notes. And what I said was, Nigel agrees with a hideous promo that I pray to God makes the tape. Words won't <laughs> do this justice. So, sadly, it I did, did not, not use words. Yeah, it did not make the tape. So, If anyone's yeah. listening who has the outtakes, send it along. <laughs> It, it, it's funny because, you know, Nigel, I remember, I think Les Thatcher, like, said that Nigel was one of the wrestlers in his life. He saw the most, like, progress, like, he was apparently horrible as a wrestler and then came the farthest way to become great. And that makes me seem like maybe Nigel had to do the same with promos because I don't remember him being a terrible promo, but seeing multiple reports saying that, like, this was not a good, this was not a good promo and it not even making tape, even though it's setting up a match on the next Boston show. Like, it must have been something. But uh, we cut to Sugar Sean Price backstage at intermission. He's with Moff and Whitmer. Uh, Moff is wearing a Rivera Steakhouse jacket, so he's part of the club. Uh, Moff is pissed. He expected to win tonight and to go into the Rexplex tomorrow with all the momentum in the world. Moff swears to God that they're going to win the tag house tomorrow. And he swears that when they get their hands on Alice in Danger, that they're going to send her away on a stretcher. So I'll just say here that... Between um, Moff and Whitmer not wearing the, winning the tag titles tomorrow and the Nigel promo not making tape, 
a lot of people's prayers to God, promises to God, and their prayers to God, swears to God, they're not being answered at this point. Also, also, they promise to send danger home on a stretcher, but like, this clearly is not something that concerns her too much because she was already given the cop killer a few months earlier, was taken away on a stretcher, wore a neck brace, came back for more the next day. So you just can't you just can't put Alice in danger down. You might as well not even try. Also, again, go- also no. Oh, also, we don't like man on woman violence. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, again, it just goes to the, the – again, like I don't want to ever act like I'm approving of like man-on-one violence outside of like a sanctioned intergender match. But, but at the same time, like it, it does go back to the thing where if you're building to something, it should be something – and you're tr- acting like it's going to be this huge, cool, taboo moment. It shouldn't be something we've seen a lot already, including, you know, Allison, like you just said, Allison Danger took one of like the most brutal – deadly moves in indie wrestling at this point the cop killer not that long ago so it's like i don't know i'm not that scared about her taking an exploder from bj whitmer but um that brings us to the first match after intermission the outcast killers of diablo santiago and oman tortuga defeated davy andrews and shane hagedorn in three minutes 33 seconds when tortuga pinned andrews after he got hit with a combo drop kick fall nelson slam combo from the two outcast killers uh, there wasn't much to this match. It was basically a squash for the Killers. Um, I think Andrews got a tiny bit of offense in the first minute, and the rest of the way, it was just the Killers. They just take a bunch of bumps. Uh, Gabe on commentary makes a note to say that uh, this is only the fifth or sixth match for each student. I think uh, on, on on the Honorable Mention podcast, I think Shane said this was like his seventh or eighth eighth match ever because he had worked a... a quad shot and in one of those infamous iwa mid-south quad shots where they do like thursday friday saturday sunday or whatever and um you know they just basically just bump and i'll say like they don't screw anything up although all they're basically doing is taking bumps and yeah it's just it's just a rookie match it's one of those things where it doesn't really accomplish anything because the outcast killers don't look good for beating two guys that have barely been in the business the rookies don't get a lot of experience from this and they don't really impress because they're just getting beaten up by the lowest tag team on the totem bowl in the in the company um it's basically just an excuse for them to plug the ring of honor wrestling school one interesting thing i thought about this though was if you've been watching these shows and you kind of know who Shane Hagedorn is, you'll notice that for a bunch of shows now, he's been one of the guys shooting the shows with a ringside camera. He is shooting the show. And when I noticed that in the first half, knowing that he had a match in the second half, I thought, okay, he's going to film the first half of the show, then do a match, and then take off the second half. Someone else will have to fill in for him. No, he is back after this match filming the rest of the show, except now he either has like a hoodie pulled up or like a, a, a beanie or something on his head to try and, I guess, seem more conspicuous. Even we- even, up- even weirder, he was filming this match during the match. Like, there were two of him. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> and it's it's funny because um, you listen to the Honorable Mention podcast, Hagedorn actually says, the, he goes, you know, you're wondering why Davey Andrews, even though he's being pushed as like the star student of Ring of Honor and the top of the, of the class, why did he take the fall and not Shane Hagedorn? And he said that he couldn't take the finish here because I guess knowing that he was going to come out and shoot the rest of the match, they thought it would look bad if he like survived the finisher and is right back out shooting the match. So Davey Andrews, even though the gimmick is he's the star student of Ring of Honor, had to take the fall because of that, which is just such a weird thing. But um, 
Matt, I don't know what you think. I mean, it's just a squash match, but it's definitely just to me that's the most interesting part of it. the fact that he had, took a break from shooting the show did this match, then shot the rest of the show. Like, how many times in wrestling history do you think has there ever been a cameraman who worked a match on the show and then went back to being a cameraman? I mean, I guess all the time Shane Hagedorn wrestled as long as he was a cameraman. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is, like, the first match that we've reviewed, as far as I know, where, like, one of the participants in the match is a listener. So yeah. um, so this match was five stars. Um, it's one of the best <laughs> matches I've ever seen. Um uh no um but no but seriously like yeah it was a squash um it was um but like you said the the students looked you know pretty good considering you know what I mean they didn't have much to do but like you know the the stuff they did was good um you know Hagedorn did like a bump a bump through the uh you know to the floor through the ropes took like a header on the barricade there was a pretty good bump you know Andrews t- t- tries to do like lucha style reversals um Hagedorn did a pretty cool, like, roll out of the corner to do the tag to Davey. Like, you know, it's basic, you know, new wrestler stuff, but they were, you know, they did it, you know, they did it well. Um, the Outcast Killers, you know, they look how they always looked, you know, like yeah. they, they did, um, you know, they do their usual offense. It's again, not bad. I would say this match was a squash. It was definitely better than the Carnage Crew versus Whitmer and Moff. <laughs> so I, I guess that's it. When you think about that way, yeah, that, that's saying something. I mean, they have yeah. a way, these four guys have way less experience than those four. And yeah, I would rather watch this match than that, uh, that match for sure. Yep. Uh, Joe, what'd you think? I mean, this was probably one of your first exposures ever to seeing like the vault, the famed ring of honor student class. We were all like, Ooh, ring of honor. They're trending guys. Where are they going to look like? And then you get, a three-minute squash from the Outcast Killers. Yeah, you, you just feel bad for these guys in retrospect. You've had under ten matches, and here you are in Ring of Honor, you know, with some of the best workers in the world at this point, and you're expected to to be there. And you're obviously you're in the post intermission match. You're not in a position to do well, but you know you're you get squashed pretty quick, and that you know works in Japan and the Young Lion systems. People expect early wrestlers to lose and, and grow, but in the states, you just get dismissed as a scrub because you can't win at all. And yeah, you know, it took a long time for any of these guys to get any real kind of progression. A lot of them really didn't. But well, it's well Andrew, Andrews see, was uh, gone before he could. I would yeah, say. it's always interesting to see Davy Andrews kind of a, a a what if, kind of a great what if because everyone touted him so heavily and he was gone so quickly. The funny thing is, I think a lot of people have talked about this, like a lot of people have seen, even though a lot of these rookies would end up being fun parts of the show, even if they weren't having great matches, they would get fun characters or become like cult figures. But like a lot of this, uh, of these rookies, it was more just an advertisement for the Ring of Honor school. And I think I was listening to a Between the Sheets Patreon episode the other day about ECW and a listener of the show, John Filipavich. He was a great guest. By the way, that's if you ever do the Between the Sheets Patreon, the one about ECW's road to pay-per-view, that is an excellent episode. John Filipavich is a great guest on that. Like, we should have him on this show one day, except we're not... We'll just stink up the place, Matt. But uh, I was going to say, um, he, he made a note where he, when he was doing his uh, documentary about ECW, he had interviewed uh, Rob Feinstein a few times over the course of times. And he was talking about how like during different times when he would interview Rob Feinstein or speak to him, he uh, was at different like financial success ebbs and flows, depending on where he was. And he was talking at one point he was doing good. And one of the main things he said, like 
as a reason why he was doing financially good at a certain point was the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. So I think it was important to them. It was probably the fact that they kept doing class after class of it. I, I can't imagine they would have been doing that if it wasn't making them money. So I think a lot of these segments are literally just an excuse to talk about the wrestling school. But the thing I was I'm building up to is I don't know how this is a good advertisement for the Ring of Honor Wrestling School because like. I watch these guys, and no offense to them, when I finish this match, I don't go, I want to be those guys. I'm not saying I want to be Davy Andrews or Shane Hagedorn. Like, I'll say something I've never said, I think, publicly before. Not that it's a big revelation. But I've never really wanted to be a wrestler. But the one time I did slightly consider it was when Brian Danielson was the trainer at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. Because I thought, this is my favorite wrestler in my favorite promotion I and I'm like not a small person. I'm six foot two, so you know maybe I could you know tower over these punks, you know, and be. But I only had two things not going for me, which is um, my complete lack of talent and my complete lack of bravery. But my point is, like, by the time I'd watched how these students like um, got treated, show after show after show, I was like. I don't want to go to the Ring of Honor wrestling school, even if I was interested in becoming a wrestler, because these guys' careers aren't going anywhere. Like, they're not becoming the next Brian Danielson or CM Punk. They're becoming these, like, guys that are kind of shoved to the periphery or get these, like, they're kind of one-note comedy figures. And I just don't get why. It's this weird thing where these segments serve as an advertisement for the rookies. But yet, to me, they scared me away from being a wrestler. If there was any slim chance I was going to be a wrestler, stuff like this scared me away from being it. You hear but, that, Shane? You hear that, Shane? You scared him away from being a wrestler. No, just kidding. Yeah, you, say, you saved me. No, and look, all of those guys, you know, a lot of those guys, Pele Primo, Shane Hagedorn, uh, Grizzly Redwood, Rhett Titus, you know, probably had the most prominent career of any of them. Bobby Dempsey, like all of those guys ended up getting over to one degree or another and adding like some entertainment value. And but they were, I'm and they were sure all talented. They were all, they yeah. all had talent for real. But I'm sure if you asked any of those guys, well, I know for a fact, like if you asked a lot of those guys privately, you know, it didn't turn out the way they thought it would. And the ring of honor system probably, it probably would have been better to come up in obscurity somewhere that wasn't as well known than rather than having to do matches in public on a big, like work rate indie when you have had like five matches of experience, you know, it's just a difficult position that most wrestlers did not get thrust into. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they probably would have done better by the guys if they just never put them on the ROH shows for like a long, long, long time. Like until they had a lot of experience, doing you know wrestling elsewhere like i i don't think people are mad you know to get to even be a niche figure on on a popular wrestling you know promotion but i don't think when you join wrestling school that's what you drink like if you join the ring of honor wrestling school you're probably saying like i want to be low-key or cm punk or brian danielson you're not thinking i want to be Rhett Titus and Rhett Titus has had a perfectly good career. You know, he's been on a major promotion for years now. He's held the title, I think, a tag title. He's, you know, been on pay per views, TV. Like, that's a solid career more than most students. But did any he, of those guys he, ever get a shot in another promotion? I mean, some of them worked in other promotions. I don't know if they've ever gotten huge shots. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, yeah, a lot of them that. Um, moving on to. Austin Aries defeated CM Punk in 22-47 when he made Punk submit to the half-Boston Crab. Um, so this is this is an interesting match for me watching because 
Matt, I think you and I both agreed the first time these guys wrestled in Ring of Honor, it was disappointing. I, I described that match as a match where it felt like the two had zero chemistry, where they were wrestling like different matches. Aries was trying to wrestle like his standard all-action match, and Punk was trying to do something much slower and more like a mat work-based, I thought, and I felt like it didn't really come together. This match was really interesting to me because in the first half, I felt like this time Punk in the first half, he's just wrestling Aries' match. They're doing... Lots of action, good pace, just cool moves back and forth. And it was good, but I still felt like something was off and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Part of me feels like just maybe like the your move, my, the your move, my move, it felt almost arbitrarily that way. And also I feel like when you do that kind of match, Punk can work that kind of just action moves type match that's faster paced. But that's not what he excels at, and especially like in a match against Ares where his execution is so great. Like when you're trading moves with Ares, and that's Punk's weakness, it, it is is that execution. Like it kind of is a weird little bit of a contrast where Punk wasn't really botching things, but just like, you know, it, it just doesn't it, – it's kind of a jarring contrast to me. But then the second half of this match – Punk goes for a Shining Wizard on the floor to Ares. Ares is, like, kneeling right against the uh, ring post. Ares gets out of the way. Punk knees the ring post. And from there, Ares works on the knee. Except, very shortly after he starts working on the knee, the power, the lights go out in the building. And then the spotlight gets shined. The lights come on for a second. They go back off again. Spotlight. Then they finally come back on and stay on. At this point, Punk is bleeding from, it looks like not, like a, not an intentional cut. It looks like it's in his hairline somewhere. Um, but to, to um, Aries and Punk's credit, they just keep doing the leg story. And I felt there, when Aries got to do a whole string of offense where it wasn't your move, my move, I thought the match started to get really good. And I started to like it more and more. Um, I think Aries, we've noticed this in the Brian Danielson matches, he does a great job about doing a ton of high-impact offense to a limb when he's working on it. Like, he does a lot of his signature stuff, but specifically to the leg. So he'll do, like, the power drive elbow, but to the leg. He does the 450, but to the leg. You know, he'll tailor his normal offense to the leg, which I think is really cool. And he starts doing one of his early, uh, one of the early instances in Ring of Honor, I think of another cool movie does, which is the knee breaker combo back suplex. And, you know, the, the finish, you know, plays into it. He taps CM Punk clean with a, uh, a back, a half Boston crab. And I actually thought this match by the end, it was very good. I, I thought it just got, kept getting better. I really just liked that they told a story from it. And if you like the all-action more, that's the first half. But, uh, Matt, what did you think about this match? Um, I definitely thought it was a lot better than their first match. Um, I don't think I liked it quite as much as you, but I kind of agree with your analysis of how it broke down. The early part of the match, uh, you know, they were doing a little bit better, but I still felt like their chemistry was, was lacking. Like, there was just something about it, right, that was just off, like you said. Um, I think right after, like, yeah, so this is the second, I think, Aries-Boston match in a row where someone goes to lean him against the post and do a move, and then he moves and they hit their body part on the post. So you should not lean Austin Aries against posts. It's a bad move. Because didn't Cabana try to chop him against the post at yeah, the last yeah. Boston show, and then he moved and he chopped the post? Yeah, don't do that, everybody. Um, but it was really, it's funny, because in a lot of these matches, 
when they have something like the power going out or the lights going out, it kind of like kills the crowd. I thought the crowd actually got more with them at that point. Like I think they appreciated what they were doing. And I thought it was funny because Gabe was like, I hope this doesn't happen when Liger's in the ring. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll say. <laughs> that would have been bad. Um, but no, I thought it was it was a good match. Um, it's, there was one funny spot um, where um, I, f- I forget exactly what happened, but um, let me see if I can find it. Aries has Punk in a hold. And oh, yeah, it was uh, it was like a, a half crab. And Gabe goes, there's no way Punk can survive this. His only chance is to reach the ropes. And I was like, that's surviving it. Like, how else do you survive a hold in wrestling other than reaching the ropes? Um, and he does get to the ropes. And I thought that was – it was a cool spot because what happened was Punk went for a shining wizard. But Ares grabbed the leg and turned it into the half crab. So I thought that was really cool. They also did like a big struggle at the top rope like they did in the Punk vs. Joe match where Aries goes for a superplex, but Punk fights into the Pepsi plunge position. Then Aries fights out and goes for another superplex, then Punk shoves him off the top, but Aries comes right back up. Then Punk fights off again, and, and then he hits the Pepsi plunge. And it wasn't quite as good as the sequence in Joe versus Punk, but it was really good. And But Punk couldn't cover in time because, you know, his knee was so hurt, and he grabbed it, and, it was, uh, and, and Aries got his foot on the ropes. Um, but... Yeah, they, they had a lot of cool spots like that. I thought the intensity and the drama were good down the stretch. I just, for whatever reason, I thought that the whole was less than the sum of its parts. Like, there was just something about it that just didn't get it to that really high level for me. But I thought it was a good match, definitely. Like, it was a good match. I just don't know if I would go, like, really, really good. Yeah, like, I agree with you about that, too. The, that, the way you just described it, the whole is less than the sum of the parts. Like, they did so much here, I can't say it wasn't – like, I, I actually – again, I do think I liked it more than you. But again, I would put that in that three, three and a half, three and three-quarter star, which you would think for the second time these two have wrestled – actually, the Thurgus, I think they wrestled at the TPI, the Ted Petty Invitational for IWA Mid-South, also, like, not long before this, that you'd expect two guys this talented would do something better than just, like – pretty good well after you know? they, after their first roh match i don't know that i'd expect that so i, I still think this was a nice pleasant surprise <laughs> well they'll, they'll have one more chance um yes uh, joe before i throw it to you i thought I, I forgot to mention that before the match started uh punk grabbed the mic and we got a loud fuck tna chant aimed at a at a fan that was heckling punk in the in the crowd who was wearing a tna shirt uh punk says he'd say the fan is at the wrong show but he paid his money and so he can wear what he wants punk respects that punk says though what i don't respect is your stupid haircut he then tells the fan to shave his unibrow next time he goes to the barber uh punk then baby faces it up even harder by referencing boston's recent baseball championship so again this is we were talking about joe versus punk too punk being like the super duper baby face that he rarely is. He is definitely continuing that here. Uh, except, he, except, it, except for, I mean, I don't know about heckling a fan as a super baby face move, but Punk would do that all the way to his, the end of his Ring of Honor run, uh, and he was a baby face the whole time. That's just CM Punk. Yeah. Um, Punk says uh, last time they were in Boston, Aries took out Colt Cabana, so tonight he's going to even the score, and next time in Bo- they're in Boston, he's going to let Colt get his revenge um punk then says once he beats aries samoa joe can't duck him anymore and he will get his title shot and that the third time will be a charm so interesting that they're really setting it up almost like punk's looking past aries and then aries beats him clean uh joe what do you think about the match itself though we've rattled on a lot 
Yeah, I uh, echo a lot of your points. I really enjoyed this. I thought the second half of the match was very compelling. I thought Punk did a great job selling. I thought Aries' leg-based offense was really interesting and varied, and it played right into the finish. The technical gaps were, they were what they were, a lot of jokes at the time. Oh, it's a dark match now, you know, haha, Things like that. But uh, I didn't even mind the, the first half, because I thought Punk was just, Punk was in control for a lot of it, and he was just kind of a, you know, the crowd was really super into him. I didn't even mind that. I really enjoyed this package. Uh, one funny part was, you know, Punk was locked in a hold, and Gabe said, like, oh, maybe the ref should call for the bell. Punk's very important to the to the roster of Ring of Honor, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, Dunn can go break his neck for all we care, but uh, we got to save Punk. <laughs> and um, uh, oh, just on. uh, one final note, uh, I think just recently at the 2004 Ted Petty Invitational, Punk and Aries had a match similar to this. I think I think better overall. The crowd was super into it, and there were no, you know, the lights didn't, didn't go out. That was probably the best match they've had up until that point, and this was coming pretty much right off of that. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that match in, a, in quite a while, but I wouldn't. I would be not surprised at all if that was like you just said. If that was the best match they had in two thousand four, which unfortunately for a Ring of Honor podcast, it's the one of the three they didn't do in Ring of Honor. But um, Mike Johnson wrote about the power outage, and I guess he said that uh, Gabe Sapolsky had one of his patented fits when that happened. Apparently, I guess that was audible and. Um, he also says, I, I, I thought this was interesting, he wrote, the power blew out several times, including during the Punk Aries match. So none of the rest of the power outages, if they happened at other points, made it to tape. Like, it's 15, 16 years ago, but Joe, do you remember if the power went out at any other point in the show than this match? I want to say, like, it was something in between matches. Like, little brief segments like that. Nothing big, like, during a match that got cut out. Just other times are a little more opportune, but this was the big one that came during a match. Yeah, um, I'm just looking at my notes for other any other notes I have on this. Uh, I thought there was a cool moment where Punk laid Aries face up on the second rope in the corner, and then he basically kind of sat on him and did like a bicep pose while he stepped on his throat, which was just something I haven't seen before. I also did either of you guys notice that Punk looked like a giant next to Aries? Like I know Aries isn't that tall, but for some reason I was really shocked at just like how much bigger Punk looked compared to Aries. When they went face to face at the beginning of the match, it was particularly noticeable. Yeah, like maybe it wasn't so much that I thought that I didn't realize Aries was that short, but I didn't realize Ar- Punk was that tall. Like not that he's super tall, but just tall enough that there's like a very noticeable discrepancy between the two of them. Um let me just take a quick look here. Uh, oh, I also loved how Aries hooked both his legs around Punk's one leg when he does the final half crab for the win. I thought that was a cool little moment. Like Joe said, Punk's selling was really good. He did a one-leg bridge on a German suplex near the end. Um, they even protected the Pepsi plunge like they did in the first Joe Punk match of 2004 where Punk hits it, but his knees hurt so bad that he can't make the cover quick enough and so you know Aries is able to save himself so a lot of cool little moments but like Matt said it just there's something about it that it doesn't quite add up to the sum of its parts even though a lot of those parts were really good but after the match Aries grabs a mic and he tells backstage to cut his music which they do he says before the match Punk was running his mouth and looking beyond him to, to Samoa Joe Aries points out that he ended the match with his hand raised and that means one thing he deserves the title shot against Samoa Joe Aries then ends by saying if Cole Cabana wants to bring his fat ass back to Ring of Honor, he'll just put him back on the shelf again. So one thing Ring of Honor had to do 
which I maybe Gabe doesn't get enough credit for, is they kind of had to book on three levels because you had to book show to show because people like me that were buying every show, we were buying them in part because we liked that storylines moved from every show to the next one. You also had to book every show just to be worth 20 bucks on its own as a standalone product. But you also had to book from show to show in particular cities. Like, so you look at this show, um, even though it's not going to be an ongoing feud for the next couple shows or next few shows, you know, Gabe books a angle to set up Nigel versus uh, Samoa Joe on the next show in Boston, even though we don't get to see the promo. And likewise, you know, he's setting up Colt Cabana versus Austin Aries, which will be Aries first title defense in Boston. You know, he's setting up things where even if they're not, they're going to be on the back burner for a few shows now. He, he wants to make sure that the crowd that's there live, you know, kind of gets set up for them when, so that when he puts that, those matches on the lineup for the next show in that town, there's going to be at least some built to the live audience. And I think that's just a, a good job of booking there. I agree. It's, it's a strength. But uh, next up, we have the Ring of Honor tag title match. The Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero, Dave Meltzer's best tag team in the United States, uh, defeated Generation Next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong in the, 1746. When the, real Rarys, be- the real best tag team in the United States. Exactly. When Ricky Reyes pinned Jack Evans after he hits a tombstone pile driver. Um, Matt, um, we've been kind of da- fairly down on the, the Havana Pitbulls during the, I almost said Pitbulls, Pitbulls during, <laughs> during their Ring of Honor run. This match, though, I mean, this is probably their best chance to have a really good tag match at this point. What do you think? How did it turn out? Well, now you've got me all excited about the idea of some promotion running a ball pit match where, rest, <laughs> re- where guys wrestle in, in a ball pit, which I guess are, after a pandemic, it's probably too unsanitary to even exist anymore. But um, anyway, they might not already stop existing. But anyway, let's not talk about ball pits anymore. I apologize. Um, the, uh, the match, um, well, I will say this. It wasn't as good as the match against Romero and Homicide, in my opinion. Um, so that might say something about the Havana Pitbulls. Um, but it was, I'd say it was entertaining. It was a lot of big moves, but it was kind of a mess for a few different reasons. But, you know, like they're going hot and heavy. They start off the match um, by, uh, by attacking right before the bell. Um, Romero spits at Strong as soon as he gets in the ring. But Strong just kind of stands there. So he's like, wow. Strong is being like a little bit of a punk there, but they, uh, but the, you know the match gets going hot and heavy. Reyes goes for a duck down, but Ari- but Evans like jumps on his back and flips off, and then does like a a tope con hilo onto Homicide and Romero, um, and like Homicide actually goes in the crowd to chuck Evans back toward the ring because there's very little space on that side between the ring and the barricade. Um, Strong at one point tries to monkey flip Romero into the rope, but Romero's legs hit the ropes and he flips back and grabs Roderick's legs. So they definitely have a lot of like novel spots here. Um, like the crowd, as always, loves Strong flipping Evans onto Romero. Um, uh, at another point, uh, Gabe mentions that the Rottweilers are going to post bail for Julius Smokes after the show so he can be with them for the next night. So this whole peeing on Fenway Park thing is a show long angle somehow. Um, but you know, I, I like as usual Strong using Evans as a as a weapon. Um, at one point, 
uh, when CM Punk gets back onto commentary, he complains that there's a vagina on his head from the Aries match. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's that happened. Um, <laughs> um, there was a, it, it's actually an interesting point where Evans and Romero have like a kick fight, but Romero cuts him off with a spinning heel kick. But for a moment, Evans is actually winning the kick fight, which is probably the only person that's ever won a kick fight with uh, Romero. So Jack Evans, of all people, who knows? So they get the heat on Jack for a little while. And um, Punk says they're beating Evans like they beat that fan who tried to jump in the ring. And that's when, of course, Gabe says, Punk, that's not making the tape. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. Oh, God. Um, um, but yeah, so, so they're, they're kind of like toying with Evans for a little while. Romero does like a standing key lock and rolls him up, um, before Strong breaks him up, before Strong breaks up the pin, I should say, or the hold. Um, Reyes like throws Evans into the barricade and Homicide helps, um, whenever the ref isn't looking. And I, I thought this, at this point, the match lost a decent amount of steam, like when the, when it, when the Pitbulls are working over Evans, I feel like there were certain moments where they didn't totally know what to do. Like, it's hard to explain. It just didn't seem like they really had things at hand. Um, but Evans does a drop kick to both of the Rottweilers and tags uh, Strong in, and then things pick up. Uh, Strong does, like, chops, clotheslines, double knees, the sick kick before it was named. Um, he... Uh, he uh, he hold, he does the uh, he holds the Rottweiler so Evans can do like a springboard flippy do onto both of them and it is a very good flippy do I have to say. Um, um, Romero goes for like an arb submission, but Strong lifts him with one arm and hits a backbreaker. Strong, I almost thought Strong was even more impressive than Evans here. Like I think this was a really good match for him. Um, but Romero does like a springboard drop kick to Strong's leg, and I couldn't tell if that was intentional or not to hit the leg but he wasn't doing a lot of leg holds so i think maybe it wasn't um he does a running flying knee evans breaks it up um and like and then they kind of work on strong for a little bit and i think it's a little bit better than the work on evans um reyes hits a belly to belly um but then generation x hits a doomsday crossbody um and uh, evans covers but romero saves and then they go for one on Romero, but Romero rolls strong through, so Evans misses. So I like that they did one to set up the other. Um, and he, he rolls right into an ankle lock, and Reyes suplexes Evans and covers him for two. And then it kind of falls apart. Like they just like they don't totally know what they're doing. And Evans hits a standing corkscrew shooting star press for two. Uh, hits a, a, a spin kick to Reyes' back. Um, Evans hits a 630 on Reyes, but... Gabe says he didn't get it all the way. I, I don't really... It looked all right to me. I don't know. Um, Hansen counted the pin and the bell rang, but then Hansen says it was two because the first count was actually just him dropping to the mat. Yeah. And the crowd boos like crazy. Like, it's a bullshit chant. People do not like that at all. They go for an ode to the Bulldogs, but Romero actually moves and Evans double stomps Strong's neck. So that is definitely the first time that's happened. And I think it's one of the few times that ever happens. Um, and then Reyes hits a tombstone on Evans, and he gets the win. So, like, if you, like, heard my recap, there's a lot of cool stuff. But there's, like, just these moments where it's, like, they either don't know what they're doing, things fall apart, the ref messes up. And it's, like, I think it takes the match down a decent amount to the point where it, it felt a little too messy for me. So I thought it was a good match that should have been a lot better. 
Joe, what do you think? Because I have, I have a feeling this is the kind of match that might be like more fun live. Because like Matt said, there's a lot of crazy, you know, cool moments in it. No, I remember this being a lot of fun live. I thought everyone was really well cast. You know, the, all the Strong and Evans get to do their flippy-doos. I actually thought the uh, Pipples looked good dissecting uh, Evans there. I thought everything was going along good. The match was real chippy. Like, everyone's taking kind of cheap shots at each other. That added a lot. There was this crazy move where Strong throws Evans into the air onto Romero, but he lands parallel with Romero's body, not perpendicular. He just lands, like, full force on him. It looked like it completely sucked. And, you know, up to the dive, I thought everything was going really well, and things just kind of, it just felt they lost momentum the more they went on. And then you had the fairly disastrous finish where Hanson, like, clearly counts three. I don't know what other conclusion you would come to. It's not like one side of the building saw something and, and popped for it. Like, the whole building thought, oh, cool, title change, awesome, and told no, and then it's just like bullshit, and, uh, you know, things just kind of collapsed from there. I, I thought uh, Ray's tombstone at the end was really nasty. It's I don't know if the camera really caught quite how nasty it was, but he really planted him with that. So, uh, yeah, like Matt said, good match. Uh, could have been better, but I've actually still really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think this was a good match as well, but I would put this below the Aries Punk match and the the Samoa Joe tag. Like, if those were, like, three and three-quarter, this is three and a half maybe to me. Like, a li- it's a little bit below, and I think it's saying something where that might – That's I think that still makes this the best – Havana pit bulls in ring of honor match we've seen so far. And it's like at best the third or fourth best match on this show. But, um, I don't think the pit bulls really did much different. I don't think they did anything different than they normally do. I just think this being kind of an all action spotty match and Jack Evans and Roderick strong being so good kind of made what they do just work in, in this context, it worked a bit better, but I don't think they really stepped it up or, or stepped it back. They just stepped and it was about, and it, yeah, I think Matt, you had a good description of there's a lot of cool stuff, but then there's also moments where it's a little, it just, sometimes the moments don't quite hang together. Um, I really like Jack Evans in this. I always like Jack Evans. That's becoming a theme, but I felt like he was good at, um, showing a bit of more fire than Jack Evans does. Like at one point where he like breaks up a, or like, I think maybe Reyes breaks up a pin and Jack Evans like runs to the corner and just gets in Reyes's face and like attacks him. And it's like, wow, like, like he's really kind of like showing some guts here. And then later on when he's like about to hit a move, I think like he talks shit. Like, like to me, the quintessential Jack Evans is when he's getting the shit beat out of him. And then when like the second he makes a comeback, he's still talking shit, even though he's like been beat, like had the crap beat out of him. Like that is quintessential of this era, Jack Evans, where his gimmick is just this guy where he's an, he's like an annoying little asshole, but he's not ever going to stop being an annoying little asshole. So you kind of have to respect that. Um, I love that they finally did the Ode to the Bulldog, Bulldogs right near the end, but of course, like you guys mentioned, that actually it, it doesn't help them because Romero gets out of the way and it turns into a double stomp to your own partner, which I actually think is a really cool way counter thing. I mean, it looks cool. Um, yeah, the, you guys covered most of this stuff, except the one big thing we'll get to in a second. Also, a little side note. If you um watch for some reason in the middle of this match, you can see Gabe march to ringside to tell Bobby Cruz something, which it's one of those weird things where you usually don't see it that obvious, but you can just see him like 
And this is before the false finish, but, and then one other little commentary moment, Punk says that Roderick has freaky retard strength, which would become like a catchphrase for Roderick among some of his friends and commentators. Like years later, Excalibur would still reference that, but he would modify it to freaky Roderick strength when he called PWG shows. But that would be like, it was well known among his contemporaries that Roderick Strong apparently has very good strength for a guy his size. Like, yeah, you can't you can't be saying that you can't be saying that phrase uh, nowadays. <laughs> yeah, and, and to, to their credit, I, I I at least Excalibur he modified that years ago to freaky Roderick strength. Yeah, but um, so yeah, let, the big story behind this match in a way though, and I've got actually quite a bit on it, um is that false finish, that moment which uh, Matt described where Jack Evans hits the 6.30, Ref Hansen appears to count three, crowd goes nuts, timekeeper rings the bell, but it's not the finish, it wasn't the intended finish. Um, so this is kind of an interesting story. Now, first, I want to note, the crowd went fucking nuts for that. Uh, the crowd, I think, really wanted to see new tag champs on this night. They were chanting new champ new champs before the match even started. I think, honestly, maybe they should have won the tag titles. But this was actually apparently the incident that Ref Hansen would work into early 2005 for Ring of Honor. But this apparently was the incident that really, above all else, got him fired from the company. And one of the reasons we know about this is because Ref Hansen did a shoot interview. The whole Ref and show, Sean Hansen, did an interview with the DOI, the Declaration of Independence Wrestling website, which... Did you really get a hold of, did you really get a hold of this? No, but I got a recap of it, and there is some shit. Let me tell you something, Matt. Um, so... Um, we mentioned this once before, but the Declaration of Independence website was a website around this era where they were very pro-Rob. They did a big long interview with Rob Feinstein. They were anti-Gabe, and uh, it was an insane. It was it was a bizarre website. That message board. Oh my god, I don't even know how to describe it. But whatever, like the worst kind of shit posting you've seen anywhere. Like, yeah, that was basically on that website, but like times a hundred. I don't even know. It was bizarre. And they did some shoot interviews, too. They had, uh, for a little while, tried to emulate Rob and Ring of Honor with shoot interviews on some, you know, for 10 bucks you'd get your double-disc burn DVR set. And one of the shoots they did, I don't know how many people bought this, was with Sean Hansen, Ref Hansen, from Ring of Honor, formerly of Ring of Honor, after he got fired. And I put out the call, because that's I have a sickness. I put out a call on this show and on Twitter for anyone to have a copy on uh, no one did people looked like but and i appreciate everyone that did but i was not about to go to that length to try and find it but but what i did find is Derek bergen of the prowrestlingtorch.com he has a very detailed review of this that he wrote at the time which i'm going to use now to kind of fill in some gaps here i i do want to say though that we should keep in mind all i have on this is the recap. Normally when there's a shoot interview, I like to listen and watch it for myself because sometimes, you know, people's inflections, the way they say something, the context matters a lot. I, I, I have to be fully cognizant. Of the fact I'm not getting that I'm just getting clips from, um, you know, like a recap, but at the same time, this recap does seem to be very thorough and descriptive, but I think it's some pretty interesting stuff here. So, there's some quotes and then a little bit of a summary I did of some of it because it was a long thing. I'll read – this is the first quote from Derek Bergen. He wrote, 
I don't know the names of many referees, but I know the name of Sean Hansen, and here's why. Back in November, I made the trek down to Boston as Torch, as Torch Ring of Honor news guy Sean Radican and I went to see Ring of Honor's Weekend of Thunder Night One show. Being the world's biggest Jack Evans fan, you can imagine one of the matches I was pumped up to see was a match for the tag titles involving Jack and his partner Roderick Strong against the champions, the Havana Pitbulls. Well, Sean Hansen was the ref for that match, and there was a point near the end where every single person in the building thought Hansen made a three count, giving the belts to Gen Nexus, Evans, and Strong. Every single person except Hansen, that is. Hansen said it was a two count and then flipped out on the girl who rang the bell. The match continued, and not long after, the Pitbulls ended up winning the match. You cannot imagine how livid I was after the match. I thought Booker Gabe Sapolsky had lost his mind with that spot. Over the ensuing months, I began to put together the pieces that, that, that what happened in that match wasn't planned at all. Someone fucked up. So, um... Derek then goes on to talk about the shoot interview. Uh, apparently, Ref Sean Hansen has a lot to say. Two DVDs worth. I didn't, not going to quote it all, but um, I did write a bit of a recap, a part of it, before I get to the exact quotes from uh, Bergen's description of the part in question, because I thought this was interesting slash infuriating. So this is just me recapping part of it now. Hansen seems to call down a ton of people in this shoot. Everyone from Gabe to CM Punk to Bobby Cruz to Todd Sinclair to Matt Stryker to wrestling reporters to internet fans to fellow ref Gary Moyer, who Sean apparently says things so possibly libelous about his relationship with someone else in Ring of Honor that the shoot censors him. Bergen writes in, quote, in something I found to be hilarious, Hansen said he wasn't a homophobe, but he felt that gays had a mental lapse. Derek Bergen in his review continues to write, I don't think Hansen understands what a homophobe really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. He's, like, he's like one of those guys, he's like, I'm not scared of him or nothing. <laughs> I'll just say that Ref Hansen, in reading, just reading the recap of the shoot interview, he comes off as kind of bitter and very edgelordy and just immature, I'll say, as confirmed by the part. I'm going back to Bergen's exact words now in this part of the review. Hansen's knee hit the canvas and sounded like his hand hitting the mat for the one count. And then Bergen writes at this point, okay, that's it. I'm getting out my DVD. And Bergen, in this point in the review, he shows screen caps of Hansen's hand hitting the mat three times and then him trying to go for a fourth before the crowd reacted and, and everything. So Han- I mean, Bergen writes, despite evidence clearly showing Hansen is full of shit, Hansen blamed the idiot timekeeper for ringing the bell and making everyone in the building believing they just saw a title change. Hansen did say it was half a fuck up on his part. Apparently, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, as in an earlier eight-man tag at the Midnight Express reunion show between Generation Next and a team led by Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Hansen inadvertently saw the heels doing a spot he was wasn't supposed to see as the ref of the match. After that match, Hansen got to the back only to find Gabe flipping out. You saw Roderick use the chair. The whole match is fucked up now. The funny thing is, I can actually picture Gabe flipping out, Derek writes. Uh, CM Punk, who Hansen buries at several points in the shoot, also confronted Hansen over this match and screamed at Hansen, Are you calling me a liar to my face? when Hansen didn't agree with Punk's point of view. Hansen said this was straight out of second grade. Hansen would go on to say that Punk completely changed after his epic feud with Raven and became a complete douchebag. Hansen didn't think any of these mistakes were that big of a deal and talked about the SAT wanting to book Ref Hansen for their Fusion show. Fusion was another promotion starting up at this time that didn't run very long. Um, 
Hansen alleges that Gabe was convinced Rob Feinstein was running Fusion and didn't want any Ring of Honor guys working the show. Hansen said that he got a call from Gabe reminding Hansen that referee Mike Keener was sitting at home, basically telling Hansen to shape up or he's getting shipped out. By this point, Hansen said that Ring of Honor's locker room was full of clicks, with the guys from the Midwest hanging around each other while guys from New York did the same. CM Punk who was once approachable, according to Hansen, became hated by the entire locker room. Eventually, Hansen got, ca- got canned and felt completely unappreciated as he had driven 15 hours with Dunham Marcos to the Minnesota show, along with sitting in the hospital with Xavier after Xavier was knocked silly by the Amazing Red during a match. Being fired via phone call, Han- via f- being fired via phone call, Hansen tore into Gabe. Of course I'd go back, said Hansen. Ring of Honor is money. Hansen also said he emailed Gabe several months after being fired and said he didn't, didn't hate Gabe. Hansen thinks if he hadn't cursed Gabe out on the phone when being fired, that Gabe would have brought him back. Yes, Hansen then talked about how he went berserk when Gabe called him as Hansen was at his day job at the time and was pissed as all hell. So that's the summary. So let me just say why this whole thing kind of pissed me off. Apparently in this shoot, judging from the recap and all that, Hansen blames this idiot timekeeper, this female timekeeper, and apparently, you know, the reports that he yelled at her live and all this stuff and said that, you know, the fans wouldn't have bought into the three count if if um, she hadn't rung the bell. So I ended up going back and watching this clip over and over again like it was the goddamn Sapruder film. And this is what clearly <laughs> happens. Hansen goes, drops down. He raises his hand up and hits the mat w- once. You could say maybe he was just too exuberant and and hitting it as he fell to the mat, but it clearly looked like he was going for a one count. But either way, he hits it twice, he hits it a third time, he hesitates, and at this point, the entire crowd freaks out and pops huge because they thought they just saw a title change. And only after the crowd pops huge does the timekeeper ring, ring the bell. And so for Ref Hansen to say something that's on tape to say, oh, it's the ref, it's the timekeeper's fault, she rung the bell, and if it wasn't for her, no one would have popped or thought it was the finish. That is complete fucking bullshit. Because I've seen the tape, and it, let me tell you something. Like, to, to lie about something that obviously provably false, and to, like, I don't think it's a problem for a ref to make a mistake. Even the best refs make mistakes sometimes. But the fact that he made a mistake and then tries to shit on somebody else when it's clearly your mistake, like, grow the fuck up, man. Like, you're... But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Ref Hansen is a great, mature referee. And, you know, clearly we can tell that because he's gone on to so much in wrestling after this. So Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, like, you know, and I hate to be a broken record on this, but, like, that behavior has become very popular in politics these days of not owning up to your mistakes and blaming other people. But um, I, will, I will defend him on one point where he was called out for seeing a chair shot. Yeah. Like, you know how ROH is with the chair shots. They, they, you cannot blame an individual referee for something like that. But but I agree. The uh, the behavior was sounds unbecoming. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying every single thing he says in the shoot is a lie. Or you know, certainly he wasn't the only person that said that CM Punk that changed or that they had personal problems with him or or stuff like that. But I just think when it comes to this one thing and also some of the other stuff, it sounds like he talks on the shoot. He doesn't come off as a very truthful or particularly honest person. And so we still yeah. will be seeing Ref Hansen for a few more shows. But if you want, if anyone that's ever watching these Ring of Honor shows wonders why he disappears, not that I can imagine many would be curious. This apparently is why stuff like this. Yeah, it, it, it did. Um, did DOI do like shoots with everyone who has beef with Ring of Honor at the time? Because 
That's it. Does sound entertaining at the very least. They did one with Deranged. They did one with uh, Julia Smokes and Homicide together, which I think is the only one I've ever caught. Oh, I think I did catch the Deranged one because we had a quote from him that made me really depressed. I think about Deranged seemed like kind of a creep. Um, yeah, the, yeah, it was mostly people like that. But finally, main event time. This is why everyone came to the show. Jushin Thunder Liger defeated Brian Danielson via pinfall in 18 minutes, 35 seconds after he hits a top rope brain buster. So Joe, I'll let you lead off on thoughts, but first I think there's some bit of a background about liar since he was the draw of this weekend. Uh, first we'll go to the observer. Dave wrote Liger is coming in for both the November 5th and 6th shows in Elizabeth at, Oh, they weren't both in Elizabeth, but you know what I mean. Uh, it would be Liger's first U.S. appearance since he came to WCW for that ridiculous tequila bottle finish with Juventud Guerrera. And by the time I believe, and, and the first time I believe he will have ever have wrestled on a U.S. indie show, it wasn't all that difficult to get him in as Samoa Joe just went through his connections with the New Japan USA office. So before I get to my other notes, I'll just say. Dave's kind of wrong here. Looking up in cage match, uh, Liger did wrestle a tag match with Tiger Mask in a uh, Hawaiian indie show the year before this. Now, so, you know, he wasn't in the mainland America, but technically Liger actually did work America one time between 1999 and 2004. Um, next up, PW Torch wrote, Liger was made available to Ring of Honor in part because Liger went to the New Japan Dojo in Los Angeles, where Samoa Joe was one of the trainers, to check out the setup and work with the students. Sapolsky flew to L.A. himself and then utilized Liger while he was in the in the States for two events. Samoa Joe's New Japan connections could lead to more Japan talent working for Ring of Honor in the future. <laughs> now, this is an amazing thing. I, I, I'm going to put out a call right after this. But um, Samoa Joe wrote in his online web journal... Quote, I am still I am still in somewhat of a quandary as to what I will be for Halloween. I was, however, informed today that I will be taking Liger trick or treating for a film segment on Samurai TV. So, yes, if you see me costume undecided and Liger con mascara with funny mustache glasses over his mask. I mean, come on. He has to have some kind of costume. It is Halloween. You best bust out the good treats as Candy Corn will elicit a high kick from me and Smarties will be met with a shate from Liger. For reference, poorly carved pumpkins will be stolen from your house and Liger bombed for the pleasure of the Japanese viewing audience, silly Americans. So I just want to say, did this ever, to any listeners, did this ever happen? And is there footage of Samoa Joe actually going trick-or-treating with Chushin Liger? Because I completely forgot this was ever even mentioned. Oh, I never knew knew about that until you just said it just now. So that sounds amazing. Yeah, and so yeah, um... Liger was there, I guess, for the whole week because, you know, he was in California. And like the torch said, Gabe mentioned this on commentary. He actually flew down to California to record a shoot interview with Liger, which I I recall it wasn't a particularly great shoot interview because it all had to be done through an interpreter. But there is actually a English language shoot interview with Jushin Liger. And then I'm just looking at my notes finally. Okay, I guess the one last thing I'll say is, uh, is, uh, I think one thing people were kind of worried about 
it, it not maybe words too strong a word, but Liger at this time was not the Liger fans knew and loved in America. He was actually in part of a heel group called S. I mean CTU in New Japan at this point. And in fact, I believe one Joe Gagne bought a CTU shirt at the show, according to a live report. Yes, but, and um, I learned uh, I learned a uh, large in Japan does not equal a large in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only wrestling fan in the U.S. that I think that I has learned that lesson over the years. But um, but he wore an all black outfit, and I think I remember at the time people were kind of worried that like, are we going to get the liger that we kind of want to see, which is the liger we remember, you know, the the red and white with the classic theme and, and being a good guy, or is he going to kind of stay true to what his character is in Japan and be a heel and be all in black? And thankfully, I think for a lot of fans, he was like just classic lovable pure baby face classic costume classic music the liger you know and love um joe what did you think of the match and also is this the first time you ever saw liger live because again this would be the first time he had worked mainland u.s since 1999 yes this was the first time i had seen him live i would go on to see him live several other times Humorously, one of them was for Ring of Honor two years ago, and he he just worked the you know as part of the War of the Worlds tour. He just worked as a in in a tag match in the opener. It's just like, hey, Liger, cool. You know, it was just, <laughs> but this was just a a monstrously big deal because, as you said, he hadn't been over in five years, and you didn't expect he would be over because who was going to bring him over at that point? Was his was his last match in the mainland U.S. before this the one where Juventud Guerrero broke a bottle over his head? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing I think you have to keep in context too when you think about is is Liger was 39 at this point and he had already kind of pushed himself out of the world title scene for a few years by this point. I don't think he had been – I think his last reign was that one – he won with the tequila bottle weirdness or whatever or the – the rematch or whatever and he lost the title in 2000 so you have to think a lot of fans coming to the show might have even thought this might be the last chance you ever get to see liger in the u.s he's 39 you know he's not like a top pushing himself as a top star anymore we haven't seen him in the mainland for five years but yet shockingly not only would he be back a bunch he'd work everywhere from he'd work freaking japw in 2010 you know he'd he'd work nxt like but at the time you might have actually thought joe like this might be my only time opportunity to ever see liger in the u.s yeah and to see him brought over and and treated well like no no bottles were involved in the uh the ending <laughs> of this match now this year he had uh actually won noah's Junior tag title. I mean, junior title. He had worked a, a program there, so he was. He was at this point. He was clearly a legend, and well, not at the peak of his power. Still a big star in Japan. So, really, a good time to uh, to, to see him live. And uh, so, as for the, uh, I would say, as for the match itself, I thought it was very, very good. Elevated by a great atmosphere. They make mention that it was like I got the biggest reaction they've ever heard. If that's true or not, I. I can't say it, it. It was. I remember it being very loud. Everyone was just so happy to see him. You know, like you said, in the red and white with his classic theme, and you know he he, you know he worked very hard. He he played all the hits. He you know we saw the capo kick, the shote. Uh, you know, I thought Danielson was excellent in this. There was a really you know he clearly knew everyone was your liger. He played the heel. There's a funny spot. He kept going for the mask and referee. Uh, I forget who the ref was. Was it uh, Todd Sinclair? Todd Sinclair, I think. Yeah, he said that he kept saying off the mask, and you know Danielson faked a hearing problem. Be like, what? Take off the mask? Like, <laughs> like he would he would say like, you know, Todd Sinclair wanted him to remove Jushin Liger's mask mid match. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta uh, pop on that. But the work was very good. They had some very good near falls at the end with the Liger bomb, and then the big 
Brain Buster finished and everyone home happy. This was really like one of the the highlights of my live wrestling fandom up to that point was seeing this match. Matt, I'm going to throw it to you next, but I'm going to give you a question too. Um, like, like Joe referenced, the announcers mentioned this is the loudest reaction in Ring of Honor history. I don't know if it's the loudest like vocal reaction, although it was very, it was loud. But there's a point like before the match where the fans are clapping. And I think that's like the loudest kind of reaction of that kind I've ever like the, like very loud like the entire like to hear probably you know almost seven hundred people clapping that that's something I don't think we've heard in Ring of Honor up to this point this way like quite that atmosphere. And what did you think about the match? I would agree. That's actually more the Japanese style crowd that Dave was talking about um, with the I clapping. Know. But um, <laughs> it's funny as far as like the reactions. I know this is going to sound like a joke, but the only uh, like reaction that I could think of to a guy that might have been louder than this was uh, just incredible. Um, I was going to say I knew it, just incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, but honestly, you go back, you listen go watch to our it, shows, yeah. or watch the show. It is one of the. I remember like reading in the Observer that in the report before I watched the show, I thought bull fucking shit, and it really still to this day, up to this point, in Ring of Honor history, one of the loudest pops ever is for just incredible. I still think maybe the loudest. And uh, Joe, you were live for both, so I don't know if you can re- remember, but I'm sure. This moment was going to stick in your mind more, even if the, that other pop was louder, just because it's you know Jushin Liger, and that's just incredible. Um, but do you remember, as a comparison, how loud you remember each of those two pops being? Uh, I, I can't really, but you're absolutely right. The just incredible pop was huge because it, you know that was like a, a surprise, and yeah, I mean you know it, it was still just incredible at the end. It was still completely bonkers, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. People lost their minds when he came out, so. It's hard to compare. I think this was that, that was a pop of like cool surprise, and this was like a pop of anticipation and, and appreciation. Yeah, yeah. As far as the match, um, I so it was very good. I wouldn't say it was a classic, but what I would say it was, it was classy. Like it's just like a really classy main event where it's like you just like you have these two pros. One of them's a legend at this point. Obviously, they're both legends now, but one of them's a legend at this point. He just he works hard. The the other guy knows his role and plays it really well and like just you could tell Danielson is just having so much fun being a heel against Liger and just like everything they do looks good it's all logical it's it's they're certainly they're certainly not taking any like chances or like reinventing the wheel as far as like how they put this match together it's pretty basic in terms of the layout. You know, Danielson, he's um, he's throwing Liger around ringside. He's being smarmy. He's 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 posing in the ring whenever he uh, he does something bad to Liger. You know, kind of a preview of his 2006 persona. You know, he's 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 trying to mess with the mask. He's every time he's in a hold, he'll like grind like he'll grind Liger's face and, and and go for the mask. You know, I love like you said the spot where he's like uh, where Sinclair's like off the mask and he's like what take off the mask like <laughs> i you know that's just i can repeat that all the time that's very, and they say he didn't have charisma come on um, yeah like there's a playfulness that he had already at this point yeah and it fit in so well he had a, i think his longest airplane spin to date in this match um um i also like like the you know um they both went for flying headbutts and missed you know, I like, you know, they did like the double down stuff. When Liger hits a palm strike to Dragon's face um, in the corner, Gabe goes, how many times have you seen it on tape? Now you get to see it live. And I'm like, actually, I'm watching it on tape. Um, <laughs> but um, 
But um, no, it's just like yes, I like you know Danielson was working over the arm. He hits you know he hits his his German suplexes. He they're you know they're not holding anything back, but they're also not trying to have some epic, shocking match. You know all the beats of the match are pretty predictable. I would say, you know you know uh, Danielson gets on his hold, Liger gets to the ropes, Danielson taunts Liger, so Liger smacks him in the face, blocks the vertical suplex attempt. Hits a brain buster, hits a couple big palm strikes, a Liger bomb, which Danielson escapes, but then Liger hits a, uh, a Liger bomb. The only surprise I would say was Danielson kicking out of the Liger bomb. Um, I actually that that near fall got me, but then he then the top row brain buster for Liger to get the win. I just it was just a lot of fun. Like this was not this isn't the kind of match where you're like yeah you got to see this match. It's not going to be on my match of the year list. It's just like good solid like giving the people what they want and working hard while doing it with two like really really talented and skilled professionals that's how i would describe the match and a crowd that was like like joe said elevated it because they were so excited for what they were seeing yeah i I think your review meant like that's a ton of my own thoughts or or your thoughts actually on this one i think like in a way way this is disappointing because if you just think oh liger versus brian danielson on paper you're expecting a classic and just like you this will not be on my match of the year list you know it's probably in line with the other matches on the show like three and three quarter stars you know it's not quite even great just a hair below but it's 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 just really fun seeing these two guys get to be together. The crowd is obviously it's infectious to see how fun, much fun they're gonna they're having seeing Liger there. Um, I would almost describe the feeling of this match of it's like they're having a house show match quality match or like house show effort match, but it's like the most talented wrestler going with an all time legend having a house show match. So like that's gonna be pretty good, and. Um, uh, the thing I, I really always noticed from Liger, but I really noticed in this match, and I've said this before, but um, if if you want, if you're any wrestlers are listening to this or whatever, or promoters or whatever, if you ever want to learn how to sell like with your body, Jushin Liger is the wrestler you have to watch. He, Liger sells better wearing a mask than 99% of wrestlers w- without masks sell. Like, he sells emotions and everything. Uh, you can tell if he's, like, w- when he's being funny or, or mean or, you know, angry or in pain, you know, or, you know, or getting hyped up or when he's playing to the crowd. Like, he, his body language is so expressive. There's a moment late in the match where Danielson, like, uh, drop kicks Liger's arm and just watch the way that like Liger grabs his arm and like drops to the mat like almost like his arm has betrayed him like ow oh, this goddamn arm like it, it is such a beautiful master class in selling without being able to show your face and he is just just like he just is charismatic and you would never say the mask is a burden for him and it's amazing and I would just say if you want to learn how to sell emotion without your facial expression liger's the guy you have to watch just watch as many matches of his as you can because i I can't say how you could watch a lot and not learn some pick up some things from him from that um yeah just like matt you said best it's it's not a bad match it's a really good match but it's basic They, they these guys they don't try and do anything too special they don't they don't try and surprise the crowd really it's like they're giving the crowd the spots they want to see, and they're giving the crowd what the kind of match they want to see, which is 
the babyface legend taking on like Danielson kind of healing it up like Joe mentioned a little more than he normally would. He like he balls up his robe and throws it at Liger before the entrances are over and stuff like that. You know, it, it it's it's not trying to go over and above the Call of Duty, but it's also giving the fans kind of exactly what they want. It's like almost like a comfort food kind of match. And um, Joe was in Liger's corner, so setting up the next night, he's kind of watching the match. And, you know, fans really happy at the end of the match. So that ends the show in the ring, but we'll continue on. We cut backstage to the Carnage crew. Uh, DeVito says they respect Mick Foley, but they're not going to let him turn them into the bad guys here. Lok says even though though they beat Moth and Whitmer tonight, they have a feeling that this isn't over. And oh god, oh. Fuck, fuck no. Uh, Lok says Alice in danger needs to get out of their stay out of their business. They don't want her around. And then they finally end by saying Moth and Whitmer's upcoming tag title shot should be theirs. So Carnage crew setting up a bunch of matches in this promo. None of them want none of them, not a single one being a match I want to see right now. But uh, um. We cut next to inside the building as fans are clearing out. We hear an, we see an out-of-breath Jushin Liger speaking to the camera in broken English. He thanks us all. He says he's very, very happy because the fans all said Liger, Liger, Liger. And I thought that was very adorable. Jushin Liger, one of the most adorable wrestlers in pro wrestling history. Um, apparently, according to Mike Johnson, a large group of fans remained after the show for a post-event autograph signing as well. Um, Joe, did you get an, an, an like your autograph after the show, or did you feel like you already drove two hours to get here? You needed to get the hell home. Yeah, I was uh, I wanted to get the hell home at that point, beat the, <laughs> the traffic, so to speak. Drive home was much easier, of course, getting out of Boston. But uh, no, I was yeah, I was I was never really big on autographs or anything like that. I had my t shirt that was t shirt that didn't fit. That was plenty for me. So, <laughs> um. Hey, you know what? You got that son. You know, one day he's going to fit into that shirt, and that's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, you can tell him all about CTU. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we go backstage again to the embassy. Uh, Nana's congratulating Jimmy Rave on another win. Nana says it's time for Jimmy Rave to get a title shot, be it the pure title or the world title. Nana tells um, – I forget her name. Nah, this is embarrassing. Yeah, it was, it was Angel – Angel Wilson. Yeah, Angel right? Williams, yeah. yeah oh, I Angel always... Williams. Oh, AKA, who is that girl? Like, that, that, that's how they call her on this show. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, yeah, I'm just being in character. Uh, Nana tells her not to touch him, and Ray remarks to Nana that his shoes are kind of dirty. Nana tells her to get down on her knees and do what she does best. Uh, in a line that comes it, 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 it was It was DeVito's blood, right, Joe? <laughs> one assumes, I don't know. His shoes look pretty clean to me. I don't know. I think he was... Uh... Yeah, that's... But in a line that kind of made me laugh, Angel gets down on her feet and she goes, but they're sneakers. <laughs> For some reason, that made me chuckle. She goes to work anyway, cleaning the sneakers. Uh, the Elcast Killer is trying to brag about winning tonight, too, but Nana, going to his typical character here, just blows them off. It's like, yeah, you guys don't matter. Tells him to get the limo, the limo to celebrate Jimmy's big win tonight. And that's the end of the show. So, Matt, we're back to the end of the show just being kind of a throwaway uh, sh- interview with lower card guys as opposed to, like, Joe versus Punk 2, which ended with kind of summing up the main event with the participants. But still continues to push storylines on. That was the weekend of Thunder Night 1. Uh, Joe, as the guest, you get to sum up the show first. What did you think about the show? Not just, uh, I mean, you have all this perspective because you saw it live. You probably rewatched it on DVD at the time. And now you've rewatched it again 16 years later. I mean, what did you think of it at the time? And has, how has it held up for you? 
Uh, loved it at the time. Still holds up for me. Like the first, the last four like main matches, not counting the the post intermission match, are all really strong. And I mean, this was so enjoyable to watch. Like, you know, I have a lot of wrestling I keep up with, so squeezing it in a Ring of Honor DVD, I thought it can be a little tricky sometimes. But I loved watching this, even though the first half with stuff that's not as great. It has CM Punk on commentary. You, you get some laughs out of it at least, and there's, there's not a lot that's really bad on this. Just some. Stuff that's middling at best. No, this is a big thumbs up for me. Yeah, um, apart from the four-way, which I probably liked more than you guys, it, the first half was, wasn't was that great. Even the Call Your Key match was just interesting. It's more interesting than good. But I felt like once you got to the Joe Tag match, everything, like there isn't a great match on the show, but I kept saying like three and three-quarter stars, three and a half stars, like pretty much everything in the second half, apart from the student match, which is just a squash, is is really enjoyable. And if you're coming into this to see Liger, you know, get appreciated by a Ring of Honor crowd and an American crowd for the first time in years, which in a way was kind of like his redemption moment to find, like like Joe kind of mentioned, like to come back to a place that would actually respect him after his last appearance in, in, in America proper on a big stage was Russo WCW. Like it, it's a, it's a feel good moment in wrestling and wrestling often doesn't have a lot, a ton of great feel good moments. And so, yeah, just uh, a, a, a fun show, a notable show. And I, I think especially just I th- when I think of the show from now, on, I'll think just like a really good second half of the show. Uh, Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I would say this was like a, in some ways, it was kind of like a back to basics show in that they didn't really have big angles on it. You know, like they actually, there's going to be a big angle on the next show, but you yeah. know, they didn't have like Foley promos or like anything like that. Um, but it was just like a lot of good wrestling, like in the second half of the show, like good main event wrestling. It reminded me actually in some ways of Glory by Honor in terms of, uh, you know, a three in terms of like the matches where it's like it never, you never get those like, where you don't get those really like top tier matches like you got on a few of the recent shows that we're going to be talking about for you know for a long time on our uh, for our uh, you know year end list, but it's just like they're just there's just such a good baseline of quality, uh, especially near the top of the card that it's hard to go wrong on these shows, and just like the tone of the vibe is pretty good, you know uh, I feel like the commentary when Punk is there is good enough you know like it's it's entertaining it adds rather than detracts whereas sometimes it can detract um so so and just in general like you know you can see things are going in a good direction i really 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 dislike the uh the carnage crew moff whitmer stuff you know it's probably the worst angle they've i mean we already mentioned this it's like you know that's the worst match they've had that we've had to review in a long time i would say but um but like this besides that it's just you know a lot of good stuff it's just the sh- the shows are just good it's like it's it's really entertaining yeah we're in a great place and uh that brings us to plug so uh joe first off what would you like to plug i i hear you're doing some podcast with a bunch of idiots that comes out soon or will probably come out within days of this being out Yes, uh, you can listen to the five-star match game, my pro wrestling trivia quiz show. And there was just an episode recently taped about SummerSlam featuring, if you can't get enough of us all together, Matt and Trevor, along with uh, good friend Justin Shapiro, answering questions on SummerSlam. There's a lot of laughs, some genuine drama, I feel. Trevor gets possessed by the Fiend at one point. And, uh, 
It's a it's a real good time, and that will be dropping. If you're listening to this, uh, it'll be out SummerSlam week, probably Tuesday yeah. or Wednesday. Just listen uh, look for on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Anywhere you get uh, podcasts, just search for Five Star Match Game. We will be there. Listen for the point where I ruin the best part of the show, as always. You know, so no different than this podcast, quite frankly. Um, for our show, we obviously, if you want, ever want to email us, that would be through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H for through. We have a for we have a, a thread on the pro wrestling only plug forum. Um, on Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame, D A M E, uh, M as in mother, um, for, uh, Matt, that would be at Mayor MGF. Joe, do you want to plug your Twitter while you're at it? Twitter is at Joe Gagne, G-A-G-N-E. Come uh, check it out. One of the only people on my feed that actually reviews uh, NXT as it is happening. So that alone is a value add to put Joe Gagne in your follows list. Um, For the record, I flip around. Like, you know, (laughs) that's what TBRs are for. You do a half-hour NXT you flip over to AEW, start there, you skip commercials, entrances, anything boring, and you go back and forth, and you're done at like 10.15 at night. You can go to bed. You don't have to... Yes. I'm not staying up till uh, midnight, uh, you know, through whatever nonsense is uh, is on. You're not no. You're not in college anymore, Joe. Can't, no, I need my work. sleep. God damn. Yeah. I'm up late enough doing this as is. And we thank you very much for it, Joe. Oh, yeah. Yes, and, and um, I'll do this specially just for Joe's wife. You just edited it to this point. Joe, we love having you on the show. You're a great guy. The only thing that I hate about the show is how many times throughout every episode we do with you that you reference how you miss your wife and how you'd rather be with her and how much better of a time you'd be having with your wife and how we've pressured you into this. And look, I know that's your real honest-to-goodness feelings, but for the love of God, Joe, just shut up about during the fucking show, okay? We know you love your wife. You know she's the best, okay? But thank you otherwise, Joe. Uh, that's, um, that's, she'll buy that for sure. Oops, uh, <laughs> we're going to edit that out. That won't make the final. Uh, that won't make the final tape. Uh, and, and until next, until ne- next time, we will be covering Weekend of Thunder Night Two with the Dream Tag Match: Jushin Liger, Samoa Joe versus Loki and Brian Danielson with an end of match uh, angle that will set up a months of storylines to come in Ring of Honor. Plus, uh, Homicide takes on John Walters for the pure title and gets a severe concussion, so that'll be gruesome to watch. And until next time, have a good time, have a great time. I'm sorry, Joe Gagney's wife. <laughs>